pitch. And on a line, knocked down on top of the mound, picked up by Iglesias. He'll throw it over to first base. Valera is officially retired, and the ball game is over. And the Angels roll to a 6-3 win over the Toronto Blue Jays. And the Blue Jays split their three-day, four-game series against the Angels. Short lead by Sebi. The pitch is hit in the air. Deep to right. That ball is gone. White Sox win. The field of dreams. Nine, eight, the final. Light it up. Can you believe it? Okay, so I've learned from the best. What have you learned? Gord Stellick's in this week for Mike Zygamanis, putting a wrap on this baby on a Friday morning. I'm not going to get into a word salad about the Blue Jays situation, Gord. I'm going to keep it simple. The KISS method. Did the Blue Jays gain ground in the wild card race last night? Well, obviously not because they lost. So did they lose ground? Not to Boston. They did to Oakland. Mm Mm-hmm but not to Boston, the second wildcard team, because Boston lost in Tampa Bay or home to Tampa Bay yesterday afternoon. So no gain, no loss. Simple. Status quo. Status quo. That's right. I mean, you can throw the five different teams out that they're chasing, but first things first, right? Like, you know, just when you drive a race, you pass one car at a time, and that's the one they have. So, Man, it, was Barrios bad last night. Yeah. Oh, I, I know that happens. So... The, you know, you, the, the Field of Dreams game was definitely the game last night. You were hoping maybe the Jays would have that version like they had uh, against the White Sox that comeback, or against the Red Sox that comeback game last Sunday. But, yeah, he, he just, from the word go, just in trouble, just in trouble, walks. I know everyone knows. Nobody walks people on purpose. but And he like, very rarely walks anybody. Yeah, and you just kind of go, please, let's just let the guy hit and get on base. You know, just but easier said than done. That just really showed he didn't have it. When you have... A plus pitcher. I think it's probably not right for me to suggest that Burrios is an elite pitcher relative to his peers, but he is definitely in the upper echelon of top pitchers in this game. He's got to be in some kind of conversation, rung two on the ladder, something like that. When you have um, a very good pitcher, a potential ace on the ropes, like the Angels did, first and third, nobody out, bases loaded, one out, in the bottom of the first inning, and he's scattering everything. He's wild out of the zone, and he's wild in the zone. His stuff is catching too much of the plate and therefore very hittable, and he can't command his fastball. You've got to take advantage. So when Barrios escaped the first inning, Gord, it's scoreless, you know, like 25, 27 pitches, something like that. It's like, geez, you know, he ran his pitch count up, but... He got out of it. Yeah. So maybe now he'll settle in and get his groove. This Angels team from hitter four down with no Rendon and no Trout, this is not a long lineup. You've got threats at the top and Otani. Fletcher's a different type of threat. Walsh is back off the injured list. Good left-handed hitter with some power. After that, not much. And sure enough, he was in a second and third. Barrios was no out situation in the bottom of the second inning. You're not bailing yourself out of that type of thing twice. And it didn't happen. He gave up a four spot. 
Shohei Otani, who pitched, and the Angels never looked back. Tempting fate, yeah. You just can't keep going at it. And, uh, yeah, just just a very unsatisfying game to watch. I mean, things like Vladdy continues to struggle. We, we'll talk about that. He'll get out of that. But just it goes with the territory. They, they did make a little bit of a run late, but... Yeah, he's kind of he's kind of a perceived lockdown guy when he's pitching. That he's not going to win every game, but you don't think you're going to lose it. He's going to keep you in the game. That's the one thing about the elite pitchers. Generally, like ninety five percent of the game, the ninety five percent of the games or whatever number, you're you feel like you're always in the game and should be. And just from the word go, he just didn't have it. Well, it's one of those things where if Trent Thornton's coming into the game in the fifth inning, it's okay. Yeah, you know, because if it's if it's a high pitch game a high pitch count game for the starter and you got to bring him out because he's north of 100 pitches or something in the fifth inning and the game's 4-4. You're not bringing Trent Thornton in. No. But if Trent Thornton's coming in in the middle of the game after your starter, it's probably because things didn't go well. So, look, they're 2-2 and on this this trip. I understand that the first of the four games they played in Anaheim was a a home game. But they're 2-2 and out on the West Coast. Let's just call it that. Now they go to Seattle. They've got Robbie Ray on the hill tonight. They will have Hyunjin Ryu tomorrow and then Steven Matz on Sunday and if they can take two out of three and they should be able I mean on paper they should be able to do that they would head back east with a couple of road games to play in DC the middle of next week National League Park against Washington they would come back home from the west coast or come back to the east uh, with a four and three record and this is the sort of road trip gourd regardless of the quality of opponent where what you're looking to do at the very least is maintain. If you go five and two or six and one, man, that's gravy. But if you're four and three, that's acceptable. That's solid. As far as I'm concerned, they got a lot of home games coming up and a lot of poor teams on the schedule. They can make some of this up. Just hold serve, as they say. Just, just come home with a reasonable record, and, and but still disappointing yesterday. But you're, but you're right in the bit. Just kind of ma- maintain it at home and hope you or maintain it on the road and hope you can make some more hay at home. So it was, um, yeah. We'll see what gives on. I, I don't know. It, I know on the broadcast that their showman was kidding because Hazel May went early to get to Seattle. I, 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 I don't know if people will come down that normal neat point. ambiance from British Columbia that so many Jays fans that make it a, a, a home field feel. I don't know if it's worth it to go back and forth all the border situations, but uh, uh, that, to your point, two out of three. It's funny, just uh, yeah, two out of win two out of three. It's solid. Just win one out of three, and it starts being a little disappointing. Have you have you been to Seattle when the Jays are there at any point in the last no. decade or so since no. this whole thing took off? No, I love it. Just I don't know how it, it, that word organically just all of a sudden started to be the place I'm, to go. So you you would have been there, obviously. I was there three times. 2013, 2014, 2015. And I think we were in Seattle right before the All-Star break in 2015. So this was before Price, Tulowitzki, and all of that came to town at the end of that month. So it wasn't like front runners were just coming to see it. Right. And 13 was such a disappointment. And Josh Tolley addressed that the other day. He called it a real disappointing season. 14, they were a mediocre team, slightly above 500. Seattle is absolutely gorgeous in the summer. Like, put it on your bucket list if you haven't been. And and go in the summer when it's not rainy, but this, the sun's out, and you go down to the Pike Place Market and look 
down the way Puget Sound and there's Mount Rainier way in the background. Like it's just gorgeous. You're just surrounded by Blue Jays fans. So I would stay at the Renaissance on Madison and I think Fifth Street. And Seattle's a hilly city, obviously. Mm -hmm. It's about a 30-minute walk to the ballpark. And you get down to within about a 10 to 15-minute walk, halfway through your walk to the park, and all you see are blue T-shirts lining the street leading to what was then Safeco Field, now T-Mobile Park. Blue Jays paraphernalia everywhere. It's like they take over the city. And then batting practice scored. The road team takes batting practice last about an hour and a half before the game, that's when the fans start being allowed into the park. So there would have been 10, 15,000 people, and they all come right down to the dugout and surround the lower bowl. And it is, it is an absolute scene, an absolute scene. And then you go out after the game, and it's just Blue Jays shirt after Blue Jays shirt and Blue Jays hat in any bar, restaurant, whatever that you go into. It is, it's magical. It's unbelievable. So it's, so it's the only field like that for the Jays. You know, for Toronto Maple Leafs, if you a game in Montreal or a game in Buffalo, it can be tons Ottawa, of fun. Ottawa. Oh, oh gosh, Ottawa, Ottawa too. Ottawa. Yes, yeah. Yeah, yeah boy. But it, it could be just so much fun when you're the visiting team, but you turn it into a home team environment. And uh, the Raptors wouldn't have that, I don't wouldn't think. And uh, and that's, why, that's neat how it started in Seattle. And then just... Uh, yeah, that kind because of, the whole Canada's team, the Toronto Blue Jays, it it, it kind of chilled for a while. I don't know why it kind of went on the back burner, so it seemed after those World Series, and then that just grew out in Seattle. But I, I again, like we talked to Eric Smith yesterday when we're take, talking about the tennis or anything. Still, we're not out of COVID. Actually, we're finding out this week. Yeah, we're really not out of COVID. If you're, you know, we about trying to be careful and in moving forward, and and it's still impacting the venue. So I do because. Th- so if you're going to come from Canada to Seattle and what you have to go through to go back and forth, uh, I, you know, I, we've, I've, we've got uh, friends today that are going down to Hilton Head. Okay. And uh, the, 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 the guy and his son-in-law, they're taking a helicopter out of St. Catharines today to have the car driven across the border and meeting it again in Niagara Falls, New York, so they could drive the two cars down because they can't take it across. And then the rest of the family is flying on Saturday. So for a J series in Seattle, whatever the equivalent is, I don't, I don't, I don't. Right, think and you it's can make a, it like work. it would be a puddle jump. Do they even have Vancouver to Seattle flights? They must. It would be a twenty minutes in the air yeah. type thing, though. That's a three hour drive yeah, on, and, in a normal time. Yeah. Right? Well, and then it starts getting expensive when you. Yes. But anyway, that would be neat. That would be neat if they do have because just like when they came home to Rogers Center, it was nice to get the home field ambiance and I, I take it in buffalo it was more like when the yankees and red sox were there that you didn't have the home field like they're, they're always red sox and yankee fans that come up to toronto but you still know it's the toronto blue jays home field but i i take it in buffalo um it, it was hard to disseminate which was which especially when teams like the yankees would roll in and the red yeah. sox have a national following and all that manitobans will go down to minnesota and see the blue jays play but it's weird. Like it seems like the Jays go to Minneapolis a lot really early in the season. So if you're in Mini in late April, it's negotiable, man. Like the weather, because they target fields and outdoor mm-hmm. stadium, right? They, they they don't have the roof like they did at the Metrodome. It, so it's 
you, I, I remember the 2014 season. We were in Minneapolis right before Easter. It was like a road trip of Baltimore, Minneapolis, Cleveland. Okay. The, the Minneapolis games were freezing or a little below. They played a doubleheader. R.A. Dickey couldn't feel his fingertips and was trying to throw a knuckleball. Like, good luck. Good luck with that. So, yeah, it's they, they've got a really good following. And I think, Gord, and going off the top of my head, so if I'm a little off on this, I am willing in, to be corrected. The uniforms changed back to not exactly how they were in the early 90s, but a more modernized version of that in 2012. And I think that that's when it really took shape in Seattle. And I, I think, you know, we sit here and every now and then you say, uh, gee, I really like that team's jersey or I really don't like that team's look. What are they wearing that? I, I, don't think, I don't think guys sit around a table very often and get into uniform discussions. But I think one of the most important things that the Toronto Blue Jays did, think of the rage, Gord, the rage at that Maple Leafs third jersey from this past <laughs> season, the, the gray sleeves and the, yeah. all like people had opinions on that. And most of them weren't positive. The change back in 2012. Uh, first of all, it's a much better look than the previous one. So if you don't have memories of the early 90s, you like you like the newer uniform just for the look. If you do have memories of the 1990s, the World Series years, it reconnects you to that nostalgia because you're seeing it visually. So you're saying the uniform change you think had a lot to do with well, not necessarily with the trips down to Seattle, but with with the with with the fan base reengaging mm -hmm. with the team. Like, there were great players who rolled through here in the 2000s. You know, Carlos Delgado was gone after 2004, and he was only a Blue Jay for the first black and blue uniform season. But, like, Vernon Wells had some good years. Yep. Roy Halladay is obviously a, a legend and a Hall of Famer. And some other very good players came through this city. And Roy being the true exception to what I'm about to say, I, I don't really feel any kind of connection to anything that went on there in the mid to late 2000s. John Gibbons came back. He'll always be remembered far more fondly for his second tenure as Blue Jays manager, and there was some success. So they changed their uniforms in 2012, and then in the winter of 12 into 13, and Alex Anthopoulos made all those moves that didn't work out in 2013, but at least signaled that the team was trying to go for it for the first time in a long time. So I think those two things were heavy factors. So it goes back to our theme of the week, meaningful baseball in September and August. And it it only happened the one year Tim Johnson was a manager. That's the only year, only time it happened after 1993. It's funny, up till, up till 2015, it would be one you'd have to think of. And you'd say, yeah, it's been over 20 years who has the last hit in a playoff game for the Toronto Blue Jays and Joe Carter's home run. Like it just kind of stay there forever. It's a little bit of a trick question. So all of a sudden you have meaningful baseball in September and people start getting And I know you're talking the Seattle thing happened before 2015, but that is what really adds to it. Cause just like that, you're, you're, you're watching, you're watching intently versus having tuned out and saying, uh, Hey, Maple Leaf training camp, Raptor training camp or whatever else may be coming up. Text us to 59590, best, so we want your best and worst uniform 
in pro sports. Wow. Your best uniform in pro sports, your worst uniform in pro sports. Now, we've got a defense attorney who is a devout listener to this show. She is on retainer, as Ziggy and I like to say, Allison in Toronto. And she texts in a lot. She says, go to any CVS or Walgreens at 9 a.m. during the Seattle weekend, and all you see is people in Jay's gear cleaning out the beer fridges. (laughs) 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 Then stopping at Starbucks for a little pick-me-up coffee on the way to the park. Have to get your priorities straight. I'm telling you. So what is now T-Mobile Park, then Safeco Field, I think we know it best, is a gorgeous, gorgeous outlay, just the way that they did it. The press box is right above the first level concourse. And it's a very open air concept. Like some, every press box is essentially open air, but some far more than others. The waft of garlic fries, the waft of the smell of garlic fries seeps into the press box by about the second inning Mm -hmm. and just sits there for the rest of the game. It is, let's see, the garlic fries in Seattle, get them. Okay, well, I think you'd have no choice if you just run the treadmill in the morning. Yeah. Run the treadmill in the morning to make yourself feel good about yourself and then indulge just a little bit in Seattle. It's uh, it's good stuff. Best and worst uniforms in pro sports. Do you have one of each that comes off the top of your head? Gosh, I'm I'm, I'm not a super passionate fan. I, I just remember the New York Islanders third jersey that looked like jigs mcdonald the play-by-play captain guy. highliner captain highliner just wendell you, clark you, well you know wendell yeah. will talk about those jerseys all day he played in them it's and you know brendan shanahan talks about how he was to um able to bring back the old maple leaf yeah and he he talked about it with the board and they said well just do it you're president he said, he goes, that's been one of the coolest things I got to do was uh, early on. They go, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm going to bring back the traditional Toronto Maple Leaf. And there's, I don't know, there's something about uh, biased, whether it's, uh, I know with the Chicago Blackhawks, uh, the name situation is is something that has to be or continues to be looked at dealing with. But the Red Wings and just those classics uh, are the ones that stand out for me. But uh, so I, I'm biased there. But Remember the Boston Bruins had one look like Winnie the Pooh? Yeah, the the big yellow third jersey. Andrew Raycroft, who's a friend of the show. There's some photos of him kicking around on Google wearing that, the Winnie the Pooh bear. Yeah. Now, now, back in the Bill Vec day, did the Chicago White Sox not wear shorts? For one season in either 76 or 77. Yeah. They could wear shorts. Like, how do you slide into second I, base? I just... You hit a double and it's a close play at second. You got to slide in. You're trying to steal second base? Yeah, I like, just... what? I'm trying to remember how that happened. Uh, it, it's like the hockey equivalent of Cooper Cooperals, which the Philadelphia Flyers wore two years and Hartford wore one year. And they just, they made it look like you had a bad diaper. You know, it just did. It just <laughs> did like, a, like it's, you know, athletes are, are they're there. Well, you see there's, there's a vein part as they should be because they're in such great shape. So generally, but those things just, uh, yeah, kind of look like, Hey, it's your turn. We your were, turn to change. We were talking about this one the other day, uh, when we were watching Sportsnet central on one of the two TVs, the Oakland A's rolling these days with that not that evergreen tree green the kelly green the the navy green the kelly green as you call it is that is that well i believe that's i mean charlie finley for all his you know uh, carnival kind of huckster type environment that you know and he he that that color actually resonates way better with other things they did afterwards yeah so jason in toronto is saying that and the los angeles chargers 
I'm down with a Los Angeles Chargers powder blue. That is a good look out there on the West Coast in the NFL. The worst, he said, you said at those Leafs reverse retro jerseys. Yeah, it just... It just... I got one for you. It's funny because I'm a devout Cubs fan. Okay. So it's hard for me to admit that I like anything St. Louis Cardinals. But the St. Louis Cardinals uniform is right up near the top of the best in North American professional yeah. sports. The two birds on the end of, e- uh, of the bat, the red Cardinals, like it's really stark. It's And it's traditional and it's all, it's fantastic. Just uh, Bush Stadium, just because the Leafs would play the Blues a lot in the Norse division. So you'd walk around saying, St. Louis is just a neat city. It's not a big city. And uh, I'm always annoyed. I never actually went into the Pro Bowlers Hall of Fame. Like it was there and you kept walking the by. The Pro Bowlers Hall of it's Fame. It's in St. Louis. And you kept thinking, I'm just kind of curious. I'll get around to it sometime. I think it would take eight seconds to visit. I don't know. But, um, yeah, later when you never go back anymore, you keep going. <laughs> just like every time you walk around, you know, just there's this Pro Bowlers Hall of Fame. Damn. Pro Bowlers Hall of Fame in St. Louis, Missouri. I mean, they've got the arch. Mm-hmm. They've got the casino in East St. Louis, Illinois. That's another trip. But, and, uh, uh, yeah, and I, I, they talked about, so they, they would tell, they told some rookie once. Back before, you know, you could check anything that under the arch, they gave free McDonald's at noon. Oh, my goodness. So the guy went there. <laughs> of course, they give you nothing but the big arch in St. Louis. So <laughs> back then, you're watching your meal money, and they weren't team meals. So, yeah, you, you, you sucker, the, sucker the individual to try that. Well, the Blue Jays disappoint last night, so they end up with a split in L.A. against the Angels. Uh, they lose the game. Jose Barrios was not good. And so it's off to Seattle tonight for a three-game series. And if you think the last couple of games have been late, starting at 9.38, 10-10 tonight and tomorrow night. And then a 4-10 with the Pacific time zone three hours behind us, a 4-10 first pitch on Sunday. So an opportunity to go up to Seattle and try to make more hay in the wild card race and push if there is a chance for the American League East. The Yankees and the White Sox had an absolute barn burner. At the Field of Dreams game in Dyersville, Iowa last night. We will get into that whole experience. The Kevin Costner show is in some ways what it turned out to be. He was a big part of the pregame. He was, I think, in the booth with Joe Buck and John Smoltz for an inning and a half. So he had a lot to say, uh, talked a lot about the movie. Is this better as a one-off or is this better as something Major League Baseball does each and every year because there is talk that they're going to do it again next year and there are rumors that the Chicago Cubs, of course Iowa being so close to Chicago, uh, the Chicago Cubs will get an opportunity to play in that game in 2022. So we will discuss that. And single-game sports betting, we know that it passed in Parliament, it passed the Senate, and all it needed was Liz's signature on a piece of paper. It got royal assent. Yeah, the odds were really strong on that, by the way, that Liz would sign it. Could you imagine? Yeah. You imagine if she actually, I mean, the governor general is the one who does this for, we're having a little stupid fun here, but could you imagine if she just took one look at it and was like, you know, of all the things, I've never gotten involved in a Commonwealth country's policies, but I am going to step in on this single game sports betting in Canada. So time for another King Bing affair to go back in Canadian history. King Bing. Now, now, uh, Queen Elizabeth, all due respect, beyond her husband passing, she's got a lot on her plate. Like 
just family. Uh, oh, yeah. Oh, I, 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 just, I just, oh, Harry sorry. and Megan and. Oh, yeah. And Andrew's, you know, like uh, deciding, decided he would uh, do it. In, I know it's a while ago, but that's a lot for in the royal era, uh, royal realm to have to deal with and yeah. to kind of sit back and stew about. Yeah, that family is. There's an ESPN 30 for 30. That, well, The Crown is essentially the Netflix show, The Crown, yes, is, that's is, right. is pretty much the long version of the ESPN 30 for 30. Uh, but single game sports betting will come in on August the 27th. Uh, we'll get you some thoughts on that. This is this is big, big news uh, for the way that we like to play and, and emotionally invest, financially invest, and the way that we watch these games. Uh, it's all ahead. And Mitch Bannon covering the Blue Jays. For Sports Illustrated, he'll join us next hour. Taking your texts, best and worst uniform in pro sports. Fire it up to 595.90. And, and, you know, to go back to a point... We also talked about that Field of Dreams game mm-hmm. about being a one-off or not. And that'll be another future troll poll about things that should have been a one-off, but they beat to death. So they're, yes. You know, because it's, it's everyone's, that's great. Let's do it again. You go, you know what? That should have been three years later. It should have been a standalone one-off. Yes. So the first thing that would come off, and we don't want to digress too no, far no, because no, then yeah. we'll get into 92 yeah, different we'll topics. The uniforms. And, yeah, yeah. But, but I, it occurs to me if you've been to one winter classic, that's probably. That's the best example. That's probably yeah. enough. Jump right? the shark. It's minus 700 outside. Although the scenery at Tahoe, and I know the sun compromised those games, but the scenery at Tahoe last winter was pretty good. Like, <laughs> pretty good. I wouldn't have minded being able to go to that. Yeah, but but it's funny when it's almost like when it comes and they've added more games and they got names for them and you kind of go, don't care, heritage, don't care, winter, don't care, stadium series. I was fortunate. I was in the in the big house in Michigan, mm-hmm. and because the Leafs won in uh, uh, overtime or a shootout, shootout, both that. So, but you forget how cold it was. Like you for you know, everything is now just. But it, it what it, what an ordeal it was. What an ordeal. The weather was horrible, but it's a it's a pleasant memory, but. It was horrible weather-wise, and other, and then the one they had at uh, Bemo Field, and that one the Leafs Austin Matthews scored in overtime. But again, it's kind of like I, I got more of a kick because there was the alumni game, and actually when Dino Cicerelli took the slap shot, which he should typical typical Dino Cicerelli took a slap shot in the alumni game, so they won. The Red Wings won on a slap shot, which wasn't supposed to be legal. But I'm I'm sort of I'm sort of okay about. Outdoor games. Uh, no, no, I, sen- have- I sense your heart rate starting to go up on the Dino Cicerelli thing. I like this. I like <laughs> so- this. A little competitiveness in an alumni game. Well, and, and of course it would be Dino. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> of course. Exactly, exactly. So throw your text out there. Best and worst uniforms in professional sports. The Field of Dreams game, and that ties into the uniforms. The old school White Sox and Yankees uniforms last night were really cool. So there were a variety of opinions on what went down last night in Dyersville, Iowa, out there on social media. And I consider myself a realist and and sometimes a cynic, Gord. I am not at all ashamed to say that I love the movie. I said to you yesterday that I rewatched it on Sunday. And in, in part in prep, well, the Jays were annoying me on Sunday, and then they yeah. stopped annoying me when the movie ended, and I tuned in just in time for the Springer home run. But 
In, in part because I wanted to remind myself of the movie so that when the scenics came up last night, I was more familiarized and it was more recently in my mind. I thought they did a really nice job with all of it. And if it's too gushy and if they're mythologizing something too much, I guess you can hold that opinion. But for what went down last night and having Kevin Costner there and, and talking about the movie, I thought the pregame show was excellent. There was a narrated piece by Ray Liotta who played Shoeless Joe in Field of Dreams. There was a conversation about the summer of 1988 and how they filmed the movie at that location that summer. The James Earl Jones as Terrence Mann speech, People Will Come, they alluded to that. And I thought there were personal moments too where Big Poppy, David Ortiz on the pregame panel as Costner was guesting was saying, I got emotional when I watched the movie because it is a father and son movie. And I remember playing catch with my dad and how he brought me along. And I got to where I am because of my parents in particular and my dad taking that time with me. And then A-Rod piggybacked off that <clears throat> and said, my father left our family when I was 13, left my mom, my brother, my sister, and me. And all I wanted was to play catch with my dad. So it hit A-Rod in a different way. Lots of personal tales, lots of personal stories, a beautiful layout. For what it was, I thought it was great. And I really don't see the need to piss all over something like that. Yeah, it's, it's, They're mythologizing a myth. I get it. It's a movie. It wasn't real to begin with. But it was a pre pretty cool setting, and it was different. It was unique. You have the option not to watch. Correct. Like anything. <laughs> if, you, if you really I want to watch this so yeah. that I can tweet yeah. how much I hate it. Express my anger uh, about... So Kevin Costner being there was was great. Him coming out of the cornfield. And um, we're saying there's stocks of corn. That's it. There's still the high stocks of corn. And then the players coming out, intermingling the teams together. That was really... So I... I and then after, I don't know if the corn magnetizes the ball. There were eight home runs hit. Eight home runs. There's hit. more balls out in the corn than yeah. there was corn. Well, yeah, by the end of it. So, and a dramatic finish, um, like a field of dreams, so perfectly scripted. So, it's better the Jays game wasn't in the field, you know, the field of dreams segment because that would would have been a little bit boring for those watching it. So, it it had that it had that matinee feel. Like I like I mentioned, the Jays game, you know, they're different time uh, time zones. So, in watching it, but the Jays game was so non compelling. And this was quite compelling. I, I liked it. But, to, you know, to your point, we're not going to drift about, you know, do you do it again? The Cubs give you a chance to do it again and, you know, have a connection there. Then at some point you think, okay, the Field of Dreams, um, yeah, year eight, that, you know, maybe there's, there's only so many Godfather movies and, you know, what, you know, <laughs> Revenge of the Nerd movies and whatever, that at some point you say uncle. But, you, you, like... I, there were some opinions I was seeing on social media that I did agree with, that it, it, instead of going back to Iowa every single year, and maybe there's a second time that you do it because the Cubs are the other Chicago team, and uh, Cubs AAA team has been in Des Moines, Iowa forever. So there's a tie there. Right. Maybe the Cubs play a game against the Cardinals or some important opponent, good rivalry game, something like that. But after that, I mean, if I'm Major League Baseball... You know what I should do? I should build a stadium like the one that we saw last night in the cornfield in Iowa, somewhere in the Dominican Republic. 
How many guys come from that island and play in Major League Baseball? And when you think of that number, how many more sign professionally at the age of 16 and don't make it? And when you take into the totality all of those faces, all of those names, those thousands of players through the years, how many of them start getting tracked at 11, 12, 13 years old, and in some cases taken out of their family homes and shipped off to a baseball academy at a very tender age? If I'm Major League Baseball, reinvest in the countries and the communities where I derive such a significant chunk of my talent. And then that stadium is something that you can maintain so that youth leagues and kids in the Dominican Republic could travel and play in that stadium and have a kind of big league feel. And also, I mean, every team has a Dominican player or a few Dominican players on it. Imagine if the 2014 Toronto Blue Jays went and played a game in the Dominican Republic. Jose Reyes, Melky Cabrera, Jose Bautista, Edwin Encarnacion, Juan Francisco, Moises Sierra. There was a game in 2014 where those six hitters, in whatever order it was, were one through six in the Blue Jays' batting lineup. That was the first time in the history of the sport, Major League Baseball, that is, that six Dominican players were hitting one through six in a Major League lineup. Like imagine if they had an opportunity to go and play a game in their country. So I think, Gord... Puerto Rico, Dominican Republic, sadly, Venezuela's got to get its you-know-what together for, yes. <laughs> for, for that to be considered. But like ideas like that, I think, are, are the next step here if they want to push this out and expand it and do so appropriately. Now, I wonder what the climate is about having to leave the country at a young age or getting the opportunity. I do know just my, my, my small sampling is uh, Gord Ash, the former GM of the Jays, longtime assistant GM of the Milwaukee Brewers. He's been back in Toronto now for a few years. And the general manager in Milwaukee uh, gave him an assignment as their, to build their Dominican. He's the vice president of special projects. Yeah, yes. and the special project yep. is building their Dominican mm-hmm. baseball academy. And a lot of it was an acknowledgement that the Jays were ahead of the curb, the legendary Epi Guerrero and uh, you know, developing guys, uh, guys down there, and so that so uh, pre-COVID, because I, I know Gord's a good friend. That one week a month he was down in the Dominican, and I don't know how many major league teams are doing that, and may and maybe addressing a part a part of what you're talking about that they can stay uh, in country and and get that. But yeah, I'm I'm with you on that. That would be a neat kind of facility to hold those games and. And um, allow them to grow and thrive. And Puerto Rico, for example, was ravaged by that hurricane. What was it, three or four summers ago? And my good friend, dear friend from ESPN, Marley Rivera, who was born and raised in in Puerto Rico, went back home and not just checked in on her parents, but raised money and tried to help and and all of that. I, I mean, I just think it would be a great to ha- to have a foothold. And then the game last night, Gord. I mean, it was. You said it was. That place was a bandbox. And it was it was a hot night, and there were some gorgeous sunset scenics that the drone and all of the different camera cameras were picking up. The ball was flying. You said eight home runs. The White Sox were winning that game, and Liam Hendricks, who is the former Blue Jay, I used to call him three hundred never to his face because I'm a coward, but I used to call him three hundred ninety nine feet when he'd pitch. 
because when he was a starter for the Blue Jays, he'd give up 399-foot fly balls to the 400 mark in dead center field constantly. I was like, I don't know how this guy's getting through five innings, Mm -hmm. but he's using every inch of the park to do it. But he has turned into an elite reliever in this game. And then they went and they got Craig Kimball from the Cubs at the trade deadline. White Sox bullpen, Michael Kopech, they, they got jackhammers down there. Liam Hendricks had a bad night. Judge and Stanton both hit two-run home runs in the top of the ninth to turn a three-run deficit into a one-run lead for the Yankees. And then Tim Anderson turns it around in the bottom of the ninth inning, walks it off with a two-run home run off of Zach Britton, who's not been any good for New York this year. White Sox win 9-8. That matters to the Blue Jays in the wildcard race. But you could not have asked for better drama. Well, Absolutely. Uh, and but what a terrible walk off that is with all the fireworks. You know, you give up that home run, the Yankees to come back from a deficit in the top of the ninth and feel you have it, and then give it up. And um, it it was beyond your normal walk off because it just was the fireworks, the field of dreams, the uh, the joy of and that and that's where baseball is just a moment. Like it's a moment, just that that when the ball hits bat. And boom, you know, versus other sports that have timed elements about it. You're dribbling the ball down in basketball and you're, you're got 10 seconds to kind of think about it. Will he sink this three pointer with uh, at the buzzer and baseball just has that unpredictability that I released a pitch and all of a sudden I am now feeling that like the biggest piece of turd in the world. And, uh, and that's, that's what happened in that game. If you build it, he will come and Again, back to the Terrence Mann played by James Earl Jones speech or the little soliloquy he gave toward the end of the movie about one day they will. They will come. And I won't know why, but there think, will be baseball. So 1988 when they filmed it, do you think it was James Earl Jones' agent there? And he said, hey, you got 10 seconds. I got a good gig for you. Just go. This is CNN. This is CNN. And he just taped it, Didn't and all of a sudden went, and every time it played, he got like 500 bucks. What are whatever. the royalties for that? I eh? don't you know. You say it once, and then it runs for... I know. ...on the half hour for years? Yeah. So I don't know if down there, hey, a lunch hour, come over here. I just want you to do a quick tape. I've got you this Like, gig. even if they're paying you 50 cents yeah. every time they roll that thing, that check at the end of the year wouldn't hurt. Yeah. I started nerding out last night a little bit, started Wikipediaing some of the actors who were in that movie. So if you're if, if you're looking at Wikipedia, you're nerding out? Well. No, because I look at Wikipedia. I did not know I was nerding out. Or it's Thursday night, and I'm on my couch yeah. with a baseball game on TV in a cornfield looking at Wikipedia. I think you're hard on yourself. Do you think I'm cool? Like, I didn't say that. Does, I didn't say that. I walk don't, around don't, with a T-shirt yeah. that says, I'm cool? Don't go from one extreme to the other, okay? Yeah. <laughs> I'm just trying to get you out of the gutter. <laughs> James Earl Jones is 90 years old. 90 years old. Still kicking. Awesome stuff. And I thought Costner, I thought Costner spoke really well. And it was, I think, with Joe Buck and John Smoltz during the game. If I'm wrong about that, it was on the pregame panel, but it certainly happened last night. Costner said the movie was about things that are left unsaid between fathers and sons. So, you know, he said, he said, if you look at the movie, there's no fight scene. There's no love scene between partners or whatever. There, there, there are no hookups. There's no this. It really is ultimately, aside from the romance of baseball, it ultimately comes down to his father at the end of the movie as a young man coming back onto the field. 
have a catch. Uh, Because the father and son hadn't gotten along in life. Yeah. And the father had passed on. I remember a tweet about a couple of years ago and a guy just said, uh, I walk past every day and I see two baseball gloves at the front door, whatever, and I haven't thrown the ball with my son in three years. And every time I think about that, you know, he just said, and I I know like our our son, Justin, just every time, uh, because I was doing the morning show, so I, I was around during the day and I'd go, when I'd pick him up from school, it'd have a, a glove and I'd have a tennis ball and a bat and just, that was our thing, right? Yep. Just hit it, whatever. And then then two hockey sticks and a tennis ball just to, you know, seven, eight minutes, what have you. Now we now we throw the football a bit. I got about eight throws and I'm done. I need the uh, Ben Gay, the rub A5. You know, yeah, you gotta no, lose. no, no, you're streaking down the sideline. He's hitting you with 50-yard bombs. You can, be, you can be humble, Gordon. You, so, you can rip down that sideline. But but that's, that's said, of, and, and Adnan Virk said at the end, you want to play catch. Yeah, you want to, and... Uh, and it was great. It was good. And and forget Kevin Costner was so well young when he did it. Uh, just and would that be his defining movie that got him going? Was he a well, Bull, big Bull, star? Bull Durham came two years before that because that came out in '87. Right? You, yeah, but you, but you also know his notoriety about that he was the dad guy in the Big Chill. Like when they're yeah when they're stitching the mannequin yes. up. Okay. That apparently yeah. apparently had a bigger role though. Being a being a dad guy, I don't know how much bigger your role could be, but apparently you know they put things on the cutting room floor. So all those other like Glenn Close and all those that were in the big chill and named Kevin Klein and whatever, but so so Kevin Costner was the, the dead guy because Costner had a run in the late '80s and early '90s that was pretty solid. There was Bull Durham, there was Field of Dreams, there was Dances with Wolves, and there was The Bodyguard, where of course Whitney Houston's epic performance and the song "I Will Always Love You," like all that. Yeah, that was that was Costner's heyday, and then Waterworld came along. Remember at the time, Gord, in mid-90s, it was the most expensive movie yeah. ever made, and then at the box office, it was th- thumbs yeah, down? just Google bad idea. Yeah. And uh, Well, I don't I, think I ever saw it, to be I honest I never with saw you. it. Dances with Wolves, like it was, because back then you go to you went to theaters more, and it had the butt treatment that when your butt starts to go to sleep. Oh, the three-hour deal? Yeah. Three yeah. Hour so Dances with Wolves, like just, just a little bit. We need an intermission here so yeah. I can get a second bag of popcorn. We needed more on the cutting room floor like happened to him in the big chill. <laughs> uh, the Blue Jays lose last night in Los Angeles. Let's just be honest about it because he'll probably be very good the next time out. Jose Barrios was not uh, last night. The Blue Jays do not lose a game to the second wildcard team, Boston, because earlier in the day yesterday, the Red Sox had lost to Tampa Bay. Oakland continues to roll. They only beat Cleveland 17 to nothing yesterday. I mean, how about how about making a statement? And now Oakland goes to Texas this weekend, so it's another bad team that they get to play. So the Jays are going to have some work to do here uh, against Seattle this weekend. We're all over that this morning. Mitch Bannon covers the Blue Jays for SI. He'll be along at 735. Borny, Justin Bourne at 750 will pick up the Morgan Riley and I was on with Gunning and Bourne. Was it Tuesday or Wednesday afternoon? And we talked a bunch of Blue Jays. And at the end of the segment, I said, Borny, next time you're on, next time you're on leadoff, I need a term and a dollar figure for Morgan Riley. So we'll get back into that conversation. Uh, Julie Stewart Binks, Damian Warner at 815, the Olympic gold medal decathlete. So we're going to ask the man himself. We had the coach a couple of days, or one of his coaches a couple of days ago, so this will be great. We had the coach, so now I'm going to, because i got to say to Damon, I'm like, tell me what a day is, not a day, because it's probably not enough. Tell me what a week of training looks like. How do you get set and prepared 
for 10 different sports. Now now you'll really feel like a nerd looking at Wikipedia when he'll talk about 16 hours of wall-to-wall training. Oh. Right? So 9 p.m. at night, he's javelin throwing or something. And uh, in the 8 o'clock hour as well, uh, our friend Norm Wilner, who is the uh, senior film writer for Now Magazine, will talk about Field of Dreams and some of the better baseball movies and sports movies out there and what's Norm's take on Field of Dreams itself. Because some people, some people do believe it's 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 hokey. Mm-hmm. So... Where does Norm fall on on that scale as uh, somebody who watches the movies and and opines on them? Single-game sports betting legal in this country as of August the 27th. Kawhi Leonard gets, and Gorge, you know I'm serious when I put the H in front of W words. Kawhi Leonard gets what from the Los Angeles Clippers? We'll talk about that in a moment. I'm a fun guy. Crushed on the text line to 590-590 because I talked about Bull Durham, Field of Dreams. Kevin Costner movies. Dances with Wolves and The Bodyguard. Yeah. Because his, his late 80s, early 90s run, and I didn't mention Robin Hood. Oh, okay. So there are a few people <laughs> on the text line to 590-590 who say that was his best movie. Okay. Uh, okay, I'm not one of them. At 6.55 in the morning on a Friday, on my list of grievances... Yeah. <laughs> Not including Kevin Costner as Robin, Robin Hood is down but there. People are passionate. I appreciate it. By I the way, you, you mentioned uh, so Damian Warner. So what is it? Eight fifteen uh, will be on. So it looks like the relay team may get a silver instead of a bronze. Correct. There's a, so, a Great Britain and I don't runner. I, I don't think it's the guy that ran the last leg because I'd feel terrible for him because he just was in tears that. Whether he let up or not, but the uh, the Italian runner passed him by one one hundredths of a second. But apparently, there's been a positive doping situation, so that bronze medal for Canada, after getting screwed the the other time when they celebrated a bronze, and then all of a sudden another team came down because they ran out of their lane. So yeah, okay. So it looks like it could be upgraded to a silver. Fantastic stuff. We can't wait to talk to Damian Warner because, and I'm I don't know why, but I'm fascinated by how he trains and prepares to be so excellent and elite at so many different specialties that demand so many different types of things from muscle groups and different parts of the body. So Damian so, Warner at 8.15. Will he be training when he talks to us? Like, does he have no time? So he booked 8.15 and he said, okay, that's when I'm doing high jump? No, no, no. He's going to so, yak with us and work out the jaw. I mean, that's... Okay, uh, you know, okay. Well, that's good. Just all of a sudden, hold on. I just got to try. Lift the bar there. Okay, you know, and... Uh, there's always a little bit of time for a protein bar and a shake. And he's going to fit in a phone call with perfect. us. Perfect. Been in a phone call with us while he's at it. Uh, Mitch Bannon, Justin Bourne, next hour. Single-game sports betting legal in Canada as of August the 27th. And Kawhi Leonard signs a massive four-year contract extension with the Los Angeles Clippers. We'll give you the dollar amount, and we'll explain to you why it's really a two-year deal. Next. Stellick for Ziggy, as you heard Maria say. 
Mitch Bannon covering the Blue Jays for SI at 735. Justin Bourne of uh, Sportsnet. We'll get into the Morgan Riley conversation. I warned him, though, so I feel like I can put him on the spot, Gord. This this Riley stuff, I need answers. I need to know. Well, I, well we're talking about what kind of contracts. So I, I, again, I could be light. Uh, anyway, I just said eight years, seven million per season. Mm. Okay. I, well, as far as fitting in in Toronto, would another yeah. team offer him more? That's different. So I don't... my response to that is twofold. One, if you do that, other guys are going out. And and would you have to pedal out one of the big four to facilitate that? That's a question, not a statement. And then And then secondly, if you do that with Riley, understanding, of course, that there will only be two years left of Austin's deal at that point, and Nylander will have two years left, and then... The year after that, it would be Mitch and John Tavares. That that those are your five guys, like that's it. That there's not going to be a lot of wiggle room beyond that. You're going to have to trim around the edges again and and try to fit it all into this crazy salary cap and this flat cap that they've got right now. So it's tough, man. <laughs> I, I don't envy Kyle Dubas and Brendan Shanahan. I don't envy the situation that they're in. Well, you're talking a $2 million incremental raise. So that's the difference from where Morgan Riley is now. And again, we're, 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 ta- we're talking a year down the road, but Morgan Riley is kind of the Freddie Anderson and Zach Hyman of this year, an expiring contract, and they both left as UFAs. And a big reason, certainly in Zach's case, was because you could not find money within the cap. So, yeah, that, that is the challenge. Uh, that's the challenge now, remains to be the challenge somewhat in defense, it looked like the cap was increasing about $4 million a year when things were the heady times of pre-COVID. Remember that? Remember that era? And now, boom, the flat cap. So whatever teams like the Toronto Maple Leafs about having some kind of wiggle room, um, there's no wiggle. They're not alone, though. Blue Jays lose in Anaheim last night. Jose Barrios was not good. Uh, the Jays do not lose ground, though, on the second wild card holder, the Boston Red Sox, because earlier yesterday they fell to Tampa Bay. How about Kawhi Leonard? A four-year, so he opts out of his the final year of the deal. That oh, he surprise! Right. Well, okay, y- yes, yeah. But he also has a torn ACL, so he's not going to play much next year. Now, yeah. I understand Kevin Durant did the deal with Brooklyn on an Achilles and didn't play in the first season of that. But Kawhi gets a four-year, one hundred and seventy-six point three million dollar contract extension to stay with the Clippers. Here's why it's a two-year deal, Gord. I just gave you the first part of it. He won't play next year, or if he does, it will be very late in the season when he returns. But let's just say he doesn't play next season. So that wipes out year number one, and then year number four is a player option. So if he doesn't like the number going into the final year of the contract, he'll say, okay, we're tearing this up, and we're doing another three- or four-year deal, right? Or he moves on to another city and, and, and gets his cash there. It it is, and I applaud this. Like I, there, the thing for me that is refreshing, and I know it annoys fans because back to our uniform conversation of an hour ago in the Jerry Seinfeld stand-up, we cheer for the laundry. The players come, the players go. The players sometimes age out and retire. Other times they're traded. Other times they leave in free agency. Typically, we may love a player on another team, but we stay loyal to the laundry, as as Jerry Seinfeld likes to say. Um, you know, I am a fan of the power that the players have 
in the NBA. I love, because it's a get back. I love that Kawhi Leonard can go to Steve Ballmer and say, this is what it's going to take. That's what he did a couple of summers ago when he left Toronto. He's got one functional knee right now. And he secured a four-year contract that includes a player option on the end and a year missed on the front. Forty-four. I, I don't million know how they do. The year. LA Clippers extract value out of this. It's the constant chase of the Lakers out there for them. The constant chase for relevancy. They've got a superstar. They have to retain him. And Kawhi just says, "You want me? Hobbled or not? Here's the number." So forty-four million a year is what it averages out. And when, and when he, I mean, the the trade they made. Or the moves they made, giving up every draft pick till 2030 uh, to get the kind of team Kawhi wanted around him. So it, it was strange that that was only for two years. But there was the assumption that he was, you know, going to get out of the option. And also they knew that's where he wanted to be. He, he wanted to be back in the San Diego era uh, area. He made no bones about that in Toronto. I always, Bought the I, place in La Jolla. Yeah, I always, so you know, I know we got ecstatic here that thinking he might stay, that he loves us. And no, he doesn't dislove us. He just, he didn't want to live here. He probably had a look back at it, I think, as a real positive experience. But he's bad. So, and in some ways, Ballmer knows that. That, uh, But he, he legitimized, like, coming to the Clippers because it's the Lakers that always, well, get the big guns. Some of them they drafted, but others about being that Statue of Liberty that send me your stars. And on the I, I, maybe the Clippers are more of that, send me your downtrodden. And uh, and we'll we'll take them here, but yeah, the money the, well, the money part you just kind of uh, it is it is what it is. Obviously, scales of economy. There the, there's revenue being derived that you know backs those kind of playouts. But they also, I think you hit on a an important point there with the divestment of the draft picks. They they leverage themselves out, right? I mean, they don't yeah. they don't really have a future, Gord, without Kawhi Leonard even though he's hobbled this coming season. And they've got Paul George on a long-term contract. The other thing that's happening for the L.A. Clippers is at some point in the next couple of years, they're moving out of Staples Center. Like, Ballmer is building a palace right next, if I'm not mistaken, right next or very close to the Rams and Chargers new stadium at the old Hollywood Park race grounds there in Inglewood. Not far from the form where the Kings and Lakers used to play. So they've got a new arena that they're they're dancing up. And if you're the Los Angeles Clippers, I mean, oh, we see the highlights in all of this. I, I, if you're a diehard sports fan, you might be aware, but the Lakers used to play at the Forum, and the Clippers used to play at the Los Angeles Sports Arena. And whenever you'd watch old highlights, um, or it, back in the day, you'd watch highlights of the games from the night before, there was nobody. There was nobody in the sports arena unless the Lakers were playing a crosstown game or the Knicks came in or the Celtics came in for their one trip and they had fans out there. There was nobody, Gord. The risk the Clippers run is that Steve Ballmer's going to have this beautiful new arena and if they stink, nobody's going to pay attention to them. Los Angeles, the, the fight for the entertainment dollar is hard enough to begin with given everything that's going on down there. But then you factor in, if you want to whittle it down to sports, you've got the Los Angeles Dodgers. You've got the Los Angeles Lakers. You're not even close to being the most important 
and most marquee team in your own sport. You put up a 19, 20,000 seat arena and you don't have a team that shows up. You don't have stars. You don't have players that people want to see. You're dropping 55, 60 games a year. You're going to draw flies. The rats will be eating the popcorn from the bottom two rows right toward the floor because that'll be the only place where people are eating concession food. I mean, that, that's, that's what you're going to have. So there's a lot of pressure on Steve Ballmer to retain these guys, and Kawhi Leonard knows all of that. They're the Buffalo Braves, aren't they? Actually, the L.A. Clippers. I believe they're the Buffalo Braves. And they, they went to San Diego. San Diego right? Conquistadors, the San okay. Diego Conquistadors. So that's the old days. The And Steve, and you're right, Kawhi knows all that. And Steve Ballmer, in his purchase, that's been the watershed purchase because it was the worst run, most inept franchise. Well, Sterling was just a racist. Total, total. But I'm, I'm, I, well, I'm, yeah. sure, I'm sure there's some people that were racist that ran things and had at least success, you know, as well. So on top of it, on top of getting, right. and, but, and it was great he got caught with the comments. about and, and so, okay, it was viewed as a fire sale. It was viewed as a fire sale. And instead, it was hundreds of millions of dollars more than anyone projected. And every other sports owner said, hallelujah. Wow. Guess what? Our neighborhood has all gone up of being owners. Because Steve Ballmer just said, this is a very exclusive club. You know, this isn't like I can have a startup company and right away compete in any kind of industry. No, I got to, you know, like uh, we see with Jim Balzilli trying to get into the NHL, being a bull, bull in a china shop doesn't work. You know, it's, you got you to gotta do what they did in Winnipeg. Play nice and we'll move the Atlanta Thrashers there and just, and you're in the club. And he just, he went big. And for something that, in, in Surly's case, any other business, he would have been bankrupt. Any other business, he would have been bankrupt but because of the power of being a sports owner, modern day. TV money. Every, yeah. Alternate forms of so, revenue. So, so Balmer, yeah, he's basically said, I, I'm in full, full throttle. But you know the truth of this, Gord. I mean, I'm not educating you on anything. And, and I think if you haven't given it deep thought, it, it, it's an obvious statement. What's the value of a professional sports franchise? What's the value of your home? That's the, what someone will pay. Yeah, ding, ding, it's what ding, the market ding, will ding. bear. Yes. It's what somebody will pay for it. So if Steve Ballmer is all horned up to get into the club, yep. and this is what, okay, this is what it takes, I'll do it. It's it's chump change. Dude paid like four or five B billion dollars for the Los Angeles Clippers. Like, okay. That's like you going to the ice cream stand, handing over a nickel for a little bowl of mint chocolate chip. That's the equivalent. Doesn't doesn't mean a thing to him. It's all paper. It just it just exists. It's not actual hard cash. I wouldn't get so mint, much of it. Mint chocolate chip, by the way. But I know to your point. Yes. Well, that's a hot take. Yeah. Are you anti mint chocolate chip, or it's just not a first choice? Oh, not a first choice. Not in my top ten. Sorry. No, I want to know now what your ice cream flavor is. Well, you know, it could be like a Rocky Road or something okay. a little bit that way, or the turtles, you know, type thing. You know, and chocolate's uh, always a good go-to. A chocolate to bite into never hurt anybody. Yes. Yes. Okay. So, but but I understand the same thing. If I had that nickel. Yeah. It's like the old Maple Leaf Gardens days. One day they were selling that old guy Pops 10 cents. They called them sport bars. They were 10 cents. And then two years later, they were selling Haagen-Dazs for 250 Yeah. Oh, just like there was like, where, where's where's the incremental increase here? <laughs> 10 cents for whatever. And all of a sudden, $2.50. So 
Uh, that's just that's kind of like what the that's the Clipper buy, right? Whatever it was worth to all of a sudden a guy coming in at four point five billion. Unbelievable. Uh, Kawhi Leonard, four years, one hundred seventy six point three. But when you factor in the player option on the back end, the fourth year, and the fact his knees all torn up and he probably won't play this year, it's a lost year on the front end. It's effectively a two year contract to play basketball. He can opt in for that fourth and final year and make it a three year thing if he if he wants to. Uh, but he probably won't, and then he'll secure more money, and God bless him for that. August the 27th, single-game sports betting. So I'm just um, punching my phone in here. Got to bring the calendar up. August the 27th. Two weeks today. Yeah, Well, it's two weeks today, but what's about two weeks after that? The start of the National Football League season. And I okay tick tick tick, tick timing. And, and August the thirtieth, we are driving our son Justin to Halifax to start his first year at Dalhousie University. Nice. What's he taking? He's taking commerce. Okay. Well, I believe he'll be taking football betting. I believe he could be home on his ass in Christmas <laughs> with uh, with this <laughs> with this thing being made legal. <laughs> That's all I'm saying. So the timing is not. <laughs> <laughs> the timing's not the most fortunate as far. I've got to remind him, why don't you do a class or two? I on... didn't get you a Christmas present, Dad. I uh, can't afford it. <laughs> this year, I put too much money on the Dallas Cowboys. Um, lessons learned. It, You know, I'm not somebody who gambles much, and it is not at all a moral thing for me. It's, it's that if I start, it won't stop. And I, I know my personality so i i'm 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 down with this and i know i got so many friends who who are into it arash madani's all over it on twitter for example like it, people can't wait for this and i I, th I think that it's great but there needs to be and will be stringent protections gord because and 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 there are exceptions to the rule i want to say that this is not this is not the rule this is the exception but when you consider what is alleged to have gone on with Evander Kane, when you consider what we know to have gone on in the NBA, what 15 years ago with Tim Donahue, the corrupt referee who was bought off on more than one or two or 17 occasions. It's funny with Field of Dreams, we're talking about Shula, you're talking about the old era about <laughs> certain scandals and it was only 15 years right. ago in the so, NBA. So the parlays, of course, are designed to protect from pressure being exerted mm -hmm. on a particular party to affect a particular game to move the needle in one direction or the other. So, I mean, there are going to be stringent regulations and whatnot in place, but but those are sort of the red flags that can crop up in a situation like this. And if you know that going in, have have a blast. Have a blast. You ever been around some person? Um, I'm sure you have, but just mean when, when you're with a friend and say having a beer and they've, their whole night is about betting. So the, they're following stuff. Like rather than saying, geez, the uh, Jays won or gee, no, it's all about like, you can't keep up with it. I don't, I don't know how they live. You know, just they're con. you know, there's no, there's no genuine fan appreciation in the games, but you know that's their prerogative. You know, sure. it's it's a, but but it's just all of a sudden they're looking about. Oh, I had this, I had this by eight points, I had this by whatever, and you got like, uh, and and you're saying and, okay, and, and the moods and like it's all it's all emotion and it's understandable. It's your money on the line. You have in you have formally, in as important a way as possible, invested yourself in that particular game or that series of games. I was in the sports book in the Mirage in Vegas. 
in September of 2007. And, of course, there are just TV screens everywhere. And I'm, a, as I've said, a Chicago Cubs fan. And the Cubs that year, under Lou Pinella, made the playoffs. So they were playing important September baseball, and it was not clear at that point whether or not they were going to make the playoffs. And they had an important early September series at Wrigley against the Milwaukee Brewers. So I'm sitting there, and I'm watching 52 different screens, but I'm honed in mostly on the Cubs-Brewers game. And a guy comes up and sits, you know, those seats, and you got a little table there on the side yeah. of the seat for your, for your drink. Guy sits two over, and we're kind of the only two in the area, and he's, we, so we just start shooting the breeze. And the Milwaukee Brewers scored a run in the top of the second inning. And this guy was talking my ear off about his life, about this. And, oh, yeah, I got my, I got some money on the game here, da 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 da, da whatever he was saying. The Cubs scored three in the bottom of the third. And I watched this guy morph into Mr. Hyde. Ned Yost, the manager of the Brewers at the time, this idiot is a taxidermist from Mississippi. Look it up. He doesn't know baseball. This guy guts animals for a living. Jeff Supon, who was pitching for the Brewers yep. that night, Jeff Supon is a slop-throwing crap pitcher. Why is he leaving him in the game, this taxidermist? I watched this guy lose his mind. And rightly or wrongly, I just said, you put money on the Brewers? And he's like, more, more than I want to admit. So it's it's great. Yeah. Though. It's great stuff. Well, the last line's about anything, and and we have advertis advertisements always say it. You should never be more than you want to admit. Okay, right. And certainly about uh, haven't been to Woodbine for a while, but that's always fun. But I don't know how you could just watch a horse race without betting. You know, yeah, just I don't know. How, so you 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 always you know got to pick something. Yeah, have a horse in the race. And now on the sports, well, man, everything's just so instantaneous. And I've said to you again, getting back to Justin, that, you know, the, the, the incredible disappointment for Toronto Maple Leaf fans. And I just remember as a kid about good, great playoffs or bad playoffs, but they're so memorable. And his thing is get, winning $85 and Jason Spezza scoring the next goal. Whenever that was, he seventeen to one odds. So it's it's a good he put five dollars down. So that's his like great memory, and that's that's what it is. NFL, him and his buddies, Sundays they're there with their jerseys. They're sure. watching everything. They're like they're watching games on the toaster. I don't know, I don't know what else. The microwave's got, got a game. They got them all going. You know, this is there. You, you got your fantasy teams. Oh yeah. You you might have your favorite team. You might have a team or two that you've got money on. So you've got a bunch of different. Mm -hmm. And and for me, it's so hard to hedge my fandom so if like i'm a diehard 49ers fan so if the 49ers are say playing the seahawks and i've got dk metcalf on my fantasy team and dk metcalf torches the niners for six receptions and 150 yards and two touchdowns it helps my fantasy team but it kicks the crap out of my favorite team like you can't pull my heart in that many directions man it's a muscle it'll <laughs> explode like it it'll so it's yeah, but man, it just just the the true nature of being a diehard sports fan, however you ingest it. Single game sports betting, it's going to it'll it'll take off and then before we know it Gord, it'll be in the arenas. I mean, it's on your phone. Right? So you you'll see Scotiabank Arena Leafs Raps games. Well, they're already Rogers forging they're already game. forging gaming partnerships and that Absolutely. Where Absolutely. Th you think when the Toronto Raptors came to town, Proline couldn't put NBA games on. That was a condition 
from That's David right. Stern. And now right. they're embracing the partnerships. Right. And, uh, I mean, I saw a tweet last night. Um, Pete Rose, and look, nobody's endorsing what Pete Rose did. There is a debate to be had. Should he be in the Hall of Fame? All that. That's separate. But nobody's endorsing what Pete Rose did. But somebody did tweet, and I thought it was a good point. It's like, Pete Rose remains banned for life from baseball, but tonight's game in the cornfield is brought to you by FanDuel's, right? And DraftKings. So it's... And you know, in Pete Rose, okay, I understand it's wrong, okay? I'm I'm prefacing it. But if I owned a team, I'd love to have a manager that bet on his team. Don't bet as law on his team. Yes. Not against no, his team. No, exactly. I'm just saying, if you're an owner and you go, wow, my manager is putting his money where his mouth is uh, on your team. Right. I understand it's illegal, but there's a side and of me that says... I find that commendable. Yeah, yeah. well, then you're certainly in it to win. But like the allegations, and I, I, I underline that word yeah. from Evander Kane's estranged wife going to social media and saying, look, he threw games. I mean, that's the NHL's in, investigating now. That That's that's serious, serious stuff, right? No so, question. I mean, we'll see how that all plays out. Mitch Bannon covers the Blue Jays for Sports Illustrated. So the Jays split the four games in Anaheim. Uh, They lose last night. Jose Barrios didn't have it early, escaped a bad, ugly-looking first-inning jam, but did not escape his second-inning jam. Gave up another run in the third after the fourth spot in the second. The Angels never looked back. Shohei Otani was an offensive force. He was a a force on the mound last night. Now it's north to Seattle. I'm going to call him this. The ace, Robbie Ray, gets the ball. You take two out of three in Seattle, and you have a better than 500 trip on the West Coast, which in mid-August I think is pretty good, especially with all the home games and the weaker opponents on the schedule down the stretch. The Jays are still in a pretty good spot, two and a half back of the second wildcard team, the Boston Red Sox, who continue to struggle a loss to Tampa Bay yesterday. So we'll get into all of that with Mitch Bannon. We'll get into the Morgan Riley Maple Leafs talk. Where can the Leafs go with Riley that works for them, that works for him? Or are they ultimately going to move on? And if they do, they can't lose him for nothing. Can they? He's a free agent next summer. Born Bannon, coming up. George Stellick for Ziggy. I think we got a... I'm going to let the cat out of the bag and shout out Silent Vic. Pretty good purchase this yes. morning. Little uh, McD's breakfast. Never hurt anybody. Nice way to end on a Friday. It's good. Yeah. It's got that kind of feel. You know, there's so few people here. Like, we're here. It's neat. But we're still, like, in a bubble. We're physically in right. the studio. So it's just something special. Just our little little conclave. And you, like, I've I've... By my own choice, no pressure from anybody, but my own choice, I've continued to come into studio throughout the pandemic. I find the workplace very safe. I think Rogers has done a wonderful job. We're now being COVID screened every day when we come in. Like, I feel safer here than going to the grocery store wherever. And I know that you've come in uh, with Nick Alberga and done Leafs Nation pre and post. It, it is so it is so strange. It, it's You wander through the newsroom and all the computer terminals, Gord, and, and the boss's offices and stuff, and, like, nobody's... Nobody's in there. Everybody's working from home. Some people do come in, but generally it's empty. Mm-hmm. It's 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 like you, you almost envision all the faces. One day, one day it's going to be normal yeah. again, I think. Or are we going to have some plexiglass go up in between cubicles? Like who knows how it's all going to look and what it's going to be. 
when well, it's all well, said and done here. I know I know one bank has already decided that they're they're not going to go back to five days a week, and right. each department will decide. And they actually find it more efficient, and they'll have a – and this is when COVID's done, so they'll have a rotating um, environment that way. So the opportunity to work at home, in some ways people are more productive at home. Anyway, uh, all good. I just look forward to that sense of normalcy because it, it, is, it is that thud that seemingly came from nowhere. It would be nice. By the way, Cam from Niagara Falls shouts you out. Hi, Gordo. Loved you this week. I'm a day one fan listener. I remember you with Pat Marsden. Remember you with Damian Cox. And I met you at the CNE when the fan was live one day way, oh my way back. Goodness. So there yeah. you go. It was, so we did the big show with Damien. We did the whole time at the exhibition. Did you have a cronut? And, and uh, <laughs> just, yes. No, we, so, but we were, so we're set up and uh, every day, different, different guys or people, guys, women, whatever, would, were giving us free stuff. It was really neat just because we'd just bring people on. So we had the, a donut place gave us a coffee thing. And like by the third big or the last week of it, we had to hide stuff because like the Swiss LA guy would drop by. And now we have to hide it because the Greek food guy's coming by and then whatever. So you'd have like about, you know, you felt they were all being so nice, but you're, you know, level, layering it up that way. That was a real fun time being, and we missed the X two yes, years in a do. row. Yes, we so do. So that, that was fun. And we had a lot of, and Peter McPhee, the Cub reporter was, he would test the rides out. And anyway, we, uh. it's, you know what? Theater of the minds. The radio is still, there's opportunities still to do that. Yeah. Did the cub reporter have any issues when he was on the zipper or anything like that? A little little post post ride trauma. Yeah, cub, Cubby could be could be traumatized a little bit. Just a nice kid from the East Coast. Yeah. He's back there in PEI now. Oh, there you go. Good for him. Uh, Mitch Bannon is covering the Toronto Blue Jays for Sports Illustrated. The Jays last night uh, did not win and did not look particularly good in falling to the Angels. Jose Barrios was not himself and essentially not himself out of the get-go he does not walk many hitters he walked four in four and a third innings last night he did escape a pretty significant first inning jam and you think with the elite pitchers or the aces man if you don't get them when they're vulnerable early they'll settle in and they'll get you wasn't the case wasn't the case in trouble right away again in the second inning and uh, the angels put up a four spot Shohei Otani uh, on the mound never looked back uh, Mitch Bannon is with us, brought to you by Don Valley North Lexus, where you can expect excellence online and in the showroom. Visit DonValleyNorthLexus.com. Uh, Mitch, it's great to have you on. Appreciate your time this morning. Uh, Jose Barrios, I mean, there are exceptions to the rules a handful of times for even the best pitchers over the course of, of a major league season. It's a long, drawn-out, dragged-out 162-game deal. And that's, I'm hoping... All it was last night for Barrios. A lack of command, didn't look good, Blue Jays lose. Hey, guys, uh, good morning. Thanks for having me on. Uh, I think you kind of hit it on the head there. I think this is the type of start, and Barrios said it after the after the start, you just kind of, there's not much to learn from it. He, he didn't have his fastball command. None of the secondary pitches were then going to work because you can't kind of play off of that fastball, which I think is pretty important, especially for him to do. And so when you don't have that, he doesn't really have his entire arsenal, and then he's kind of battling. So when you look at it that way, getting kind of the 4.1 innings you did out of get out of him is almost kind of a blessing and saves the bullpen a bit heading to Seattle when he he really didn't have anything last night. So you know what? If this is a horse race, Mitch, what what do you make of the Jays and their chances given the recent additions, especially? If this is a horse race, I think it's going to come down to a nose or maybe a photo finish, at least from what we're looking at right now. It's, it's 
kind of tough for Jays fans because they look at this team and they look at uh, kind of the similarities to 2015 and that they're rattling off all these post-deadline wins. But the big difference between now and five, six years ago is that there's three or four other teams doing the exact same thing. I think Oakland is beating teams like 10-1 every night, it looks like. The Yankees, except for last night, are kind of really battling and putting up big scores with their kind of battered COVID lineup as well. And so the Jays are not really making up any room right now. They're kind of doing what they have to do to stay in this race. Yeah, and it's funny, Mitch. We were having a conversation earlier this week about the notion of must-win games in early to mid-August when there are still a good five, six, seven weeks left in the season. And I threw, threw it out there. This was before last night's game. If you went back to July the 29th, the final game at Fenway Park in that four-game series, the night before the Blue Jays came home to Toronto, the Jays had gone 12-3. and three. It's now 12-4 and four after last night. But 12-3 and three in a 15-game span and had gained two games on a wild-card playoff spot. Now, they had significantly closed the gap with Boston, but from a perspective of a wild-card position, because Oakland was the two-wild-card, Boston was the one before Boston cratered. From strictly the position of a wild-card spot, you'd only gain two games in that entire stretch. It tells you the type of baseball they're going to have to continue to play here over the next five or six weeks, which is why it's important to hold the fort out west, and then when you bring it back east and play some not-so-good opponents, you really got to take advantage. Yeah, I I think you're completely right. I don't love, kind of, especially as you said, in in August, looking at must-win games, but the way I kind of look at it is I like to, to chunk out the season into 10-game stretches or into a couple series. And if the Jays can just take six out of every 10 games, which doesn't sound like much, but that's, that's pretty hard to do in professional baseball, they're going to set themselves up as a, as a low to mid-90 wins team. And that's all you can really do. If they win 94 games and don't make the playoffs, that's going to be a tough pill to swallow. But if they can kind of shoot for a 92-93 maybe 94-win season, uh, they're going to put themselves in the position to win. But I think you're right. They're going to have to make that big run like they did, go on another 12-15 against kind of the Seattles, the Detroits, because they still play the Yankees. They still play the White Sox in this schedule. So they're going to have to take advantage of of the Orioles when they get them on their schedule, and and they do get them a few more times this year. Mitch, are you satisfied with their bullpen, where it's at, given the changes especially? Um. It's kind of an interesting question because they've definitely done everything they can do to address it. I I don't think you can be upset with what they went out and got. Now it's kind of just on those guys to perform. It's on uh, Charlie to kind of tap the guys, the right guys on the shoulders at the right time. I know a lot of people were kind of upset with Trent Thornton coming in the other night. Maybe you'd want an Adam Simber there. But you you have to realize that Charlie's got to get these guys warm. He's got to get these guys in the game. And you don't really want to be bringing Adam Simber into the fifth inning. So it's you're going to need guys that the fans don't love to perform, and they're going to need the whole unit to kind of perform. I think they got a, a good at least a duo in Simber and Romano that they can bring into the eighth and ninth inning, but they're really going to need something at a brad hand, especially when they face the Yankees, now with Gallo and Rizzo. And if Schorber comes back to the Red Sox, there's going to be big left-handed at-bats, and they're really going to need brad hand to step up down the stretch. Are you a fan of the three batter minimum rule? 
when they first introduced it, I wasn't. It seemed like kind of an arbitrary rule on guys just to kind of try to make the game faster. But I do kind of enjoy it. I think it, it adds a little bit of strategy. You kind of have to think a few batters ahead. And we saw it, I think it was one of those boxing games lasted for over four hours and there were so many pitching changes and so many guys getting warm. And it did really drag on the game. So I think uh, now looking back for a few years, uh, uh, I'm definitely accepting that rule at the very least. It's it's funny. Like I, I actually don't mind at all the runner on second base to start an extra inning because if you've ever covered an 18-inning regular season baseball game, you understand that by about the 13th, you're tapping out, whether you're watching it as a fan, whether you're covering it, and and I can't imagine what it must be like for a player uh, to play an unscheduled doubleheader, as it as it were, if it if it goes that far. I'm pro that. My issue, though, generally, and it also ties in, Mitch, the the discussion about the shift and do you ban it? Do you force two infielders to one side of the diamond, two infielders to the other side of the diamond, or the traditional setup, as it were? I really don't like legislating strategy. Like, to me, you've got a 26-man roster. And at the start of the night, nine of those names appear in your batting order in the American League, and the 10th is your pitcher. How you utilize any of the other 16 at any point in any game is entirely, and should be to me, left entirely up to you as the manager. And... You know, similar with the shift, the rule is only the catcher of the defensive positions can start a pitch in foul territory. Wherever else you want to put the other seven defenders, the pitcher must be on the rubber, the catcher must be kneeling behind the plate. Wherever you want to put the other seven, you can stand them side by side, arm on arm, in left field if you want to. Wherever you put them is where you put them. That's just how I feel about legislating strategy. I, I it. It's a can of worms that I, I think baseball is starting to uh, starting to open a little too much. Yeah, I think it's people always talk, and it's kind of ironic we're having this conversation the day after the Field of Dreams game, and everyone talks about kind of the connections between baseball and society, and like the history of baseball, and how baseball is kind of a mirror for society. And I think it's kind of hearing what you were saying there is interesting, and like not to get political or anything, but people. Uh, what should the government tell people to do? What should organizations be able to tell people to do? It's kind of, it's an interesting discussion and, and it's it's in our baseball now. And what should be the leaders to try to make the game better or, or what they're claiming to try to make the game better be able to tell the teams to do? And I think you're right, kind of baseball in its purest form is going to be the managers making those decisions. And I think that's why a lot of National League baseball fans kind of see their game as a little bit purer than the American League because they don't even have the DH. But I think a lot of AL fans will say they're kind of fans of the DH now. And so it's hard to to make judgments on these rule changes after two years, three years, four years. It would be interesting to see what people think about a three-batter minimum, what people think about the shift in, in 20, 30 years if it lasts that long. So, Mitch, if you're looking who the Jays are chasing, are they gonna be if they're going to be a wild-card team, who who do you like ahead, or who do you think think is particularly vulnerable of the teams ahead of them? See, on paper, I would probably lean and say the Rays are the most vulnerable, but they're at 70 wins, and they just show no signs of stopping. So it's kind of interesting. You kind of can throw everything you know about baseball out, uh, out of the window when you talk about the Tampa Bay Rays because they're just going to do their business anyway. 
But in terms of the other teams, I think it's, it's pretty clear the Red Sox are reeling right now, and it's kind of on the Jays to take advantage of that. Uh, they're going to have to try to pop a couple teams, and the Red Sox, unless the Yankees fall off, are going to have to be one of those. And then it's choosing another team. And I look out west, I see Oakland, who they seemed vulnerable a few weeks ago. One of their better players, Ramon Moriano, got suspended for steroids. But they just keep rolling, too. So I think it's the Jays kind of got to stick in it for the next couple weeks and then pick a couple of these teams off if they falter. It's the old thing, Mitch. you got to play your schedule. And where Oakland is right now, it's annoying the hell out of me. I mean, they dominated a, a – Texas is just wretched, right, at the bottom of the AL West. They dominated them in Oakland last week. And then they come east. They play a Cleveland team that divested itself of some of its already very limited offensive talent at the trade deadline and doesn't have Shane Bieber and Aaron Savali. They're two top starting pitchers available right now due to injury. And Oakland crushed Cleveland all week. And now they go to Texas, right? So, you know, we're sitting here... We're sitting here stewing over the Blue Jays being out west, and you just, just guy, man, you got to hold serve. But getting back to the conversation, there's Detroit on the schedule a lot. There's Minnesota on the schedule a lot. There's Baltimore on the schedule a lot. It's all going to even out. Oh, and by the way, there's Oakland on the schedule at Rogers Center coming up in early September. So you're going to have to take care of business against the teams you're chasing in this wild card race. Yeah, I've had that Oakland series in Toronto circled for since they made those deadline moves. It kind of seems like early September, three games against Oakland at home. If they can stick in it, that's going to be a huge series. If they can sweep that series, win two or three, that's where you can make the ground up. Uh, you can play the team, hold them to one or two wins, and you can, you can leapfrog them in the process. Then right after that, they play the Yankees, I think. Uh, and then they also have some series against the Rays down the stretch. And so this schedule is not going to let up for the Blue Jays, but there's definitely pockets where they play the Tigers and Orioles. And Detroit has played very good baseball, surprisingly good baseball. So I don't think Jays fans should take uh, those wins for granted, but there's pockets on the schedule where the Jays can rattle off four of five, five of six, another 12 of 15 stretch. But I think it's if you're going to assume that the other teams in this race are going to lose and let the Jays pass them, uh, you're probably not going to get in playing 500 baseball. Uh, last one for you, and it's a totally crystal ball prediction deal. This time next year, are we talking about Nate Pearson as a bona fide big leaguer? And if we are, is he in a Blue Jays uniform? I think if they didn't trade Nate Pearson in this Jose Barrios trade, they're not going to trade him. There was kind of rumors in the last couple minutes of the deadline that he was a name on the table there, but they instead chose to trade. And who knows if he was actually involved in those talks, but they instead chose to trade Austin Martin and Semyon Woods Richardson. So I think that kind of speaks to their belief in at least the cost of that asset and how they still see him as that blue chip top 50 prospect in baseball. And if I were to guess, I'm always going to give the benefit of the doubt to the stuff. I think he's got unmatched stuff. If people like Alex Manoa and what he's doing, just wait until Nate Pearson can get healthy and get starts. I think he's going to be very similar to Manoa. If he can get that slider and the changeup going, he's going to be the exact same kind of high-velocity, high-intensity ace. And I think uh, it's hard to be a number one, and I think people would take a, a three or four from Pearson right now, but the, the key is getting healthy. And, and this year was a write-off because they spent weeks trying to figure out what his injury was. So once they figured that out, they can kind of make a plan. 
sounds like he might have a bit of a, a procedure in the offseason if it requires it. But I'm going to give the benefit of the doubt to the stuff and say, yeah, he will be a major league starter next year. Really appreciate the insight, Mitch. Interesting conversation. Thank you for doing this, and we'll talk again soon. Perfect. Thanks for having me, guys. Mitch Bannon covering the Blue Jays for SI.com, and he was brought to you by Don Valley North Lexus, where you can expect excellence online and in the showroom. Visit DonValleyNorthLexus.com. So Borny's on his phone right now looking at that calendar, counting the days, 14 until single-game betting is legal in Canada, August the 27th. Now that Queen Elizabeth has signed off, pen is on paper. Uh, we'll discuss that with Borny and the Morgan Riley contract situation. He's heading into his UFA year. Borney is right after this Sportsnet 590, the fan traffic update with Barb Andrews. We do have an ongoing closure this morning on the eastbound 401. All express lanes closed east of the 400 to the Allen in the express for a fatal collision investigation. And a busy drive on that eastbound 401 delays anywhere from Dixon to east of the 400 in the express to east of Keel in the collectors. Westbound 401, you're going to find typically slow some good news earlier collisions. Southbound 404 south of Steeles, that's been cleared. If you're traveling along the eastbound Gardner, you're going to find a busy approaching Kipling over to about Dufferin and westbound Gardner approaching Jarvis. We do have a stall truck off to the right side. Enjoy football and soccer on DAZN. Stream the NFL, Premier League and UEFA Champions League. Your sport when and where you want it. Free trial at DAZN.com. From the 680 News Traffic Center, I'm Barb Andrews. Back to you, Scotty. Thank you very much, Barb. Julie Stewart-Binks at the top of the hour. Looking forward to that conversation. Damian Warner, Canada's Olympic decathlete gold medalist at 8.15. And Norm Wilner, uh, the senior film writer for Now Magazine on Field of Dreams and why does baseball lend itself to the big screen so well. Uh, Norm Wilner a little bit later on in the program, but here he is. Uh, he is a writer, an analyst, Hockey Central at Noon co-host, and many other things for Sportsnet. Justin Bourne is here. Hello, gambler. sir. I am a gambler yes. as well. Yes, you are. <laughs> and you know what? Let's parlay about Ooh. the single game betting, huh? Let's do it. Well done. Is that a fireable offense? <laughs> Trying to throw a little French uh, in the puns double. Puns are cool again. Yeah, uh, puns are. Are they? Were they ever cool? Know. You know what? I totally made that up. Like, I, there's no backing for that at all. <laughs> but I'm just, I, I like them. I so. bet. I bet you they're not. Um, <laughs> Touche. Well said. And Gord Stellick's over here rolling his eyes at me, so we better get into some conversation. But, the, I mean, this is big news, and we knew it was coming, right? So it's a, it was a formality. I don't think Queen Elizabeth was going to stand between, uh, you know, single sports, ga uh, sports game betting in Canada after Parliament and the Senate uh, saw it through. Uh, but, but this legitimately, Justin, changes the game, and it's a long time coming, isn't it? It is a long time coming. You know, the with the internet being the way it is right now, there's a lot of people who are single game betting, except they're just doing it like off the coast of the Isle of Man and all these shady uh, different <laughs> places. So people have been doing it for a long time and uh, and put their money into it. Canada might as well get their piece of the pie. Um, I, you know, mixed feelings about it, I think, for a lot of people. But I think it helps us tell the story of sports, to be honest, like, you know, looking at betting odds, I thought it was really helpful going into the gold medal match for the women's Canadian soccer, knowing that Canada was plus 410 to win, which meant that they were massive underdogs, like four to one long shots. So for me, it helps contextualize what to expect from a game when I'm not certain what to expect. 
I, I just see the Buffalo Bills number three uh, as far as odds go to win the Super Bowls. We chatted earlier Ooh. this week. Um, so, okay, now the betting, and I, I know Larry Brooks and a few others came out with, it looks like the chances of betting about NHL players in Olympic Games. And, you know, this is one Don Fear misread his constituents about how passionately they wanted to go to the Olympics, and he acknowledged that. But it just seems now the PA delivering the message from the NHL, kind of saying, um, uh, if if you go, you you better you better be prepared that if there's uh, COVID issues, you're not going to get paid. I mean, there's there. It seems from whatever complications are, there may even be more complications for that to actually happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's uh, you know, it's a. And the NHL is putting the player players in a position where they're saying, just we're not going to be liable. Like, if you want to go this, and I don't blame the NHL for saying, if you go to a qualifying tournament and you get COVID and come back and, you know, you can't play hockey games, you know, we're not on the hook for that. That's a decision you're making, so you have to, you know, insure yourself or, you know, it's not coming out of our pockets. I guess I don't disagree with that. And for the players, I also think it's a risk worth taking. Like, the... The well, and this is just you know my own take on this. But if I was a, a professional hockey player with a chance to get my country into the Olympics, and there's these qualifying tournaments, you know, you get COVID, you miss a month, or you quarantine. Like I, I feel like for NHL players, maybe it's the not not the right thing for society. Maybe it's the not the or not the right thing. But these are like once in a lifetime opportunities for some of these players. So I, I am I'm going to be interested to see what decisions players make on whether they're going to go or not. If no one's going to pay for their insurance. Well, we'll uh, we'll see how it plays out, and I mean they they are going to the games next winter, and it, it's important. I mean this is this is an important Olympics, I think, for the NHL because the one thing that that hockey has not done as well as certainly the NBA and the sport of basketball is cut into the Chinese market. Mm-hmm. I mean there are ten figures, more than a billion human beings, in that country. You want you want to put on the best show possible over that two two and a half week period that you have to do it in Beijing next winter. We we have to have or could have a bunch of other important discussions, human rights, etc. But the games are scheduled, and the NHL needs to be there if they are. Well, and I think there's this is a good example of how the NBA just is always a step ahead of the NHL. You know, the the growth, the efforts the NBA has made to include uh, a Chinese fan base and grow a Chinese fan base have been monumental. Um, you're right. There's There are complicated issues and, and worth much deeper discovery than we'll get into here. But there's no doubt that from a financial perspective and growing the game of hockey, that making an impression in the Chinese market is important. And uh, I, I think the NHL recognizes that. I mean, you just look at how many players cite Olympic moments as the most influential of their career that made them get into it, love it, want to be hockey players. So it's important for players to be there in general. And then the fact that it's in China, it's just that much bigger. Well, I, I could not agree more. And this is, and Gord, please chime in. I, this is a, I'm just announcing my ignorance on this. This is a legitimate question. Do we have any sense of how many kids in China, and I would imagine that I'm, I'm not talking about in the rural parts of the country, and it's a massive plot of land Mm -hmm. do we have any sense of the number of children kids who are playing hockey over there i mean mean, china has produced yao ming a great nba player i don't think they're anywhere close to producing a a future nhl player at this point 
Right. No, I mean, I, I wouldn't even know where to start right. in estimating a number on that. It's it's insane. So one thing I do know is that at the grassroots level, the NHL is trying to implement some programs. I played with a guy named Doug Lynch, who I know is overseas and running chi- uh, some programs, uh, learn to play programs on behalf of the NHL or in partnership with the NHL. So they, they have some feet on the grounds there, but it's a sparse few. And uh, yeah, they, they got to take massive strides to, to tap into that market if they want to make this truly a global game. Yeah, I mean, Jim Peck, we know what he's doing in South Korea. That's really a neat story there, very passionate about growing the game there. They had a a degree of success at the Olympics, just, you know, a small degree, but small steps. And first of all, I would think arenas are a problem right now, I think, just like in a lot of places, to get that exposure. But I I, I even know, Justin, you look at curling, that all of a sudden um, China puts together curling teams and quite often gets Canadian coaching expertise and... Like a month later, they're among the world elite. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I don't think any of us think it's beyond the Chinese to put together a hockey program and be intimidatingly good in like a, a couple of generations here, a generation. It, it's there's a, a real determination and you know love for for the things they commit themselves to. It seems like so. I I would love I would love to see it take off there. But you're right. It's uh, right now. It's just as simple as like, are there places for people to play? Are there places to get the gear? Are there uh, all the very you know the logistical parts of this are still very important to, to get things up and running there with justin born on leadoff sportsnet 590 the fans so i was yammering on and on and on and on and on and on and on about the blue jays uh with you and gunning on sportsnet today earlier this week and i dropped one in your lap at the end of the segment and you're not getting off the hook and this won't surprise you but i am obsessed uh in the middle of august yeah. almost a year out of Morgan Riley's unrestricted free agency status with what is going to happen with this player. And I would imagine if I'm Morgan Riley, every time a defenseman does a deal at any point over the last four or five weeks, the smile on my face gets wider. Yeah. Just look at the numbers. What is realistic as best as you can estimate, Justin, right now for Morgan Riley? in the sense of a number that fits realistically for him and realistically for the Maple Leafs. Yeah, that's uh, the, the realistic part is is tough. It depends. I think it, it really depends. Like, is this a guy who is going to grind to get every cent he can? Like, uh, like seize the deal of Wierenski making over $9 million, 9.5, and, and saying, what do you mean I'm not Zach Wierenski? Or what do you mean I'm not Seth Jones level? You know, even if you say that he's not on those guys level, what he's a hair away. So, you know, I, I think this is a guy who I don't think he's going to grind for that type of money I could see this being something that comes in at oh it's 8.775 or it's 8.75 or eight years eight years times seven and a half or something like I could see them getting somewhere like that because once you get beyond that there's just no way to make it work like the salary cap goes up a million bucks in a in a year or something like that but like there's just no way to make it work if the number gets any outside of the sevens I, I don't think so uh, big pressure on will he play for a number like that? If he won't, then boy, you got to move him. And can you let another guy walk for nothing? And uh, bah, things start to get real awkward in Leafland at that point. 
Yeah, I, I, I use the number seven, and uh, like to stay with the Leafs, he probably could get eight somewhere else. And again, we're getting ahead right. of ourselves. Uh, the Morgan Riley a couple of years ago looked like he was going to be a guy that could contend for a Norris Trophy down the road. Season before last, he was injured. Uh, last year, you know, solid enough season, but again, not uh, not one that puts you in a certain echelon. And the, the Wierenski deal is different because they needed credibility in Columbus. Somebody had to stay. So True. it's going to come down to, it seems all these guys that left wanted to stay. seems like Freddie Anderson wanted to, that Zach Hyman, that James Van Riemsdyk, and on and on and on. So I don't know. How much does Morgan Riley want to stay at Toronto Maple Leaf? I believe that's a factor. I believe he does. Mm-hmm. But uh, then to your point, you're not, you're not a team that could trade him for assets now because you're going to need him because you're talking about trying to win the Holy Grail still. Yeah, and what's, you know, Lou Lamorello had made one thing like really clear with Kyle Dubas, and I don't think it's a lesson that has served him well, and that was, if you have time, use it. That was like the Lou Lamorello cliche that I remember Kyle citing all the time, if you have time, use it. So it's like, you know, let this Morgan Riley thing play out, see how his season's going. And it's just, it's burned them, right? Like, they, they used the time with Mitch Marner, and that burned them. You know, they, they used it with Willie Nylander. Both guys should have been locked up sooner uh, before it came to the problems that it came to. So I bet that they're going to see how it goes and see what they get from Riley this season before making a decision. You know, get into the year a little bit and see where, where his season's at. Um, going to be interesting to see what his play forces their hand to do because, yeah, I I don't think you can just let him play out the season and go to UFA, can you? Well, they have a history of it. <laughs> they sure do. <laughs> they sure do. But, you. like, how many times can you do it? I'm with you. I'm with you a thousand percent. It's going to be a hell of a story to cover, and we'll continue to do it with you. Thanks, bud. Always fun. Yeah, thank you, guys. Appreciate it. Justin Bourne. Julie Stewart-Binks, the host of Drinks with Binks on the other side. But first, with a Sportsnet 590, the fan traffic update. Here's Barb Andrews. We have one outstanding issue this morning. It's the eastbound 401 express closure. Eastbound 401 from east of the 400 to the Allen. Express lanes are closed for an ongoing fatal collision investigation. Also, eastbound 401, the collector to express transfers are closed at the 400 for that investigation. Otherwise, you will find it busy on the eastbound 401. Westbound 401, also typically slow. Looking at the southbound 404 DVP, that's busy from about Finch to south of Lawrence. And eastbound Gardner, a heavy drive now anywhere from the 427 to east of Dufferin. Drive into your locally owned and operated Mr. Loop for warranty-proved oil changes, tires, batteries, filters, and fluids. Mr. Loop, proudly Canadian since 1976. From the 680 News Traffic Center, I'm Barb Andrews. Back to you, Scotty. Thank you very much, Barb. And coming up in about 15 minutes' time, Damian Warner, Canada's Olympic gold medalist decathlete. Finally get to ask him. Go right to the source. How do you train for what you do? Ten sports, you got to be good at all of them, and they all require different skills. Damian Warner coming up in just a little bit, but we're pleased to be joined now by the host of Drinks with Binks, and she was over there in Tokyo covering the Olympic Games and had a focus on uh, the softball and the baseball and our women on the softball side. Uh, one bronze. Uh, Julie is from Toronto, and she is uh, good enough to take some time to join us. Julie, how are you today? Hey, guys, I am doing wonderful. I'm on the jet lag train from (laughs) Tokyo. Got in, yeah, two days ago and just uh, riding the wave of being awake right now. So it has been, it's been honestly a whirlwind month and it's just great to be back home right now. (laughs) So, So just to be clear, you left Tokyo three days from now and got home two 
days ago. Is that is that how it works? Yeah, you know what's odd? It's like I left Tokyo August 11th at 11 a.m. and I landed in New York City August 11th at 11 a.m. So I had a whole day and I slept the whole time. I actually slept 13 hours fully before the plane land. Before the plane departed, I fell asleep and then when I it was landing, I had a note on my on my seat being like, "Please let us know when you wake up." Because, like, we think you may be dead. Um, and they, yeah, and I woke up and we were landing. That's like the dream. 13 hours? So I guess I was a little bit gassed after my 28 days or whatnot over in Japan. Yeah, I don't know. Sleeping 13 hours. Wow. But uh, it says about. <laughs> so now, what was it like given, I mean, the COVID world? heightened there, no spectators, but still the the wonderful aura of it being the Olympics and the great individual and team stories. Honestly, well, for anyone out there who follows me on Instagram, at SB underscore, you will have seen the roller coaster of emotions that I was on this entire time. So, you know, everyone pretty much knows when you cover Olympics, especially for us, you can't cover the field of play because broadcasters spend a lot of money on those rights. So I sort of documented almost like my feelings and my thoughts every single day. And it was a trip. Like it was a real trip doing it. I mean, not only are you covering an Olympics, which is quite difficult. And there's a lot of red tape involved with that. You're doing it in a foreign country with many people. A lot of people spoke English, but not everyone, not the people you really needed to in the moment to speak English. And then uh, add in a pandemic. And it's like, it is the, it was the, hardest thing I've ever done in my entire life and now I've said that I'm going to have something else thrown at me but it was so difficult to do sometimes the most basic things that you would think oh you know just go to uh, training and get some get some sound come bring it back you know get some shots make a pack and there we go no that will take 19 hours of your day because, you know, you just have to coordinate everything to do everything, whatever. So logistics aside, though, what was so cool and what I hadn't actually realized because I had been there long was I put up a photo on Instagram and it's just sort of like the sunset. And it was before uh, I believe it was like USA taking on South Korea. And there's no fans in the stands. And you kind of forget that there's no fans there because it becomes the norm. And my mom was like, wow, what a neat experience. You were one of the few people to witness the Olympics in person. And I was like, oh, my God, it hit me so hard. I was like, you're right. Like, I was at this Olympics that no one could go to. And it makes you feel obviously, like, uh, you know, extremely thankful and grateful. But also I felt really bad that I was, like, taking away I mean, someone was going to have to do my job regardless, but like, you know, for their families and for their friends. And so when the medal ceremony happened for the men, which was just happened for baseball, I actually took a lot of videos there that I ended up sending to some of the guys like Jose Bautista, Julio Rodriguez, Melky Cabrera, Todd Frazier, some of these guys I knew because no one they knew was there, right? Like, just even them walking out or getting their medal put on them, what it looked like in person. And I found that really eerie because it's like you have the biggest moment of your life and and no one's there to actually see it. And they might even be asleep or their parents would be awake, but a lot of people missed it. So 
it's like it, there's so many emotions to process with it, but it was one of those things that's like it was so the gravity of the moment and the gravity of the situation is just so grand that like you'll never forget it. It's like imprinted in my brain and I'm almost having like a hard time coming back to real life because I'm like, you guys don't know what I just thought. Like I, you know, I have PTSD from coming back from Tokyo because it was it was wild. But yeah, it was it was a great experience all around. Julie Stewart-Binks is with us on leadoff Sportsnet 590, the fans. So you brought up Jose and Melky Cabrera. And, I mean, you're you're down there in the U.S. and you've done good, but you're you're a Torontonian at heart. And I'm flipping yeah. around. I'm flipping around at some point. I can't – it might have been a round-robin game, Julie, but the Dominic, Dominican Republic was playing South Korea. And I knew Jose yeah. – I, like, i got to be honest, plead my ignorance. I knew Jose Bautista – was on the Dominican team. But my goodness, it's like, these are the 2013-14 Toronto Blue Jays. You got Emilio Bonifacio leading off. You got Melky Cabrera hitting two. You got Jose hitting four. There was Juan Francisco sitting there in the dugout. This was like old Blue Jay week down there. Kind of cool, specifically with Jose, because he's such an important part of, of our city's sporting fabric mm-hmm. in the last decade plus to include Olympic bronze medalist on his resume. Yeah. You know what? It was so surreal. Like when you just said that there, I'm watching these guys thinking, did I, did something happen? Like, did I go back in time or what, you know, what's going on? Cause then also on the other side, you have Adrian Gonzalez with Mexico and like a bunch of guys kind of scattered all over the place. You're like, I saw them play years and years ago and now they're here. And and seeing Dominican Republic was a cool team to watch. So they were the last team to qualify. They beat Venezuela to get that final spot. And they were absolutely crazy. Like, there were no fans in the audience. But, like, whoever was with their team was just going crazy the whole time. And you kind of saw it at the end when they beat South Korea to be able to win bronze. You know, they're just dancing they got their music they never stopped having a good time and I think what's really fascinating is you mentioned all those big guys like Joey Bats and Cabrera and Juan Francisco and Emilio Bonifacio but then you also have uh Julio Rodriguez who's like one of the top prospects and he's part of the Seattle Mariners organization and like he's this young guy that is yet to experience any MLB action whatsoever and and, and you kind of have this mixture of like the you know the fourth year guys in university and then like the the froshies coming in or whatever and everyone's on the same team and you're you're kind of trying to figure it out but it was I remember when I interviewed Jose Bautista I I was that girl and I was like hey you know person I work with can you get an in, can you get a picture of me doing this because I I feel like I've had a stroke and I've gone back in time or something I'm interviewing Jose Bautista at the Olympics. And this just, I never, I just never thought I'd ever have this moment in my entire life. So it was, it was really surreal. So there's some, there's some bronze medals that can be on the disappointing side, but I know watching the softball team, they had some adversity, tough luck early. This was a bronze medal they were really thrilled with. Yeah, they were. And that's what it is about team sports. It's like you, you, when you look at the podium, You see whoever got gold and whoever got bronze are happy. They're all goofing around with each other, too, which is kind of funny. And then whoever's in the silver position is just stoic 
and deadpan and upset, right? Because they just lost the game. And then they have to go out there and sort of like get their silver medal. But with Canada, man, it was, and they were so close, the Canadian women's softball team. I covered, I covered almost every single game except for, well, I covered every softball game and then I didn't cover two baseball games. I like don't even know what I just did the last month. Anyway, it was really cool covering them because they have so many unique stories. And it was really special to see Danielle Laurie get it because, as we know, she has been she's just like one of those really um, uh, powerful women that, like, extends beyond the field. And I remember she was kind of tearing up before they lost to Japan in, you know, very tight game. They, every game they lost to Japan and to um, uh, the U.S., it was like, they could have been in that gold medal game. And that's what's really difficult. They really could have been there. But she was just like, you know, I talked to my daughters. And they were crying and I was crying. And I just told them, like, I have to, you know, you got to woman up. You got to go out there. And, like, there's still a medal to be won. And we, we got to go make some history for Canada. And so when they won, as a reporter or as a whatever I was, you know, a content um, therapist, uh, you get – you get them as soon as the biggest moment in their life happens. And for anyone who's, you know, been in those flash mix zones, and first of all, there's no fans, right? So there's like, there's no energy exchange between the players and the fans. It's all, it is, it's so intense. I can't even begin to describe to you guys how intense it is to be like the first person someone talks to either when they've won the lottery or when they've basically seen a car crash happen or something. And it's like, you have to be there to sort of be like that, that you almost like a trampoline that like, like gets all that energy. And so it's really emotional and difficult. And, but it's also super inspiring and seeing like Danielle and seeing like, uh, you know, everyone on the team just who's been there before be able to win a medal and, and win it for Canada. And, and it was re- really inspiring for the sport because softball's not a sport that anyone really watches or has the ability to watch. Like, there's not really, like, a league. And I always think of this, this women's team that we just saw, I, always, I feel like they could, if there was a, a professional women's league in Canada, I know there is. I know there's a national fast-pitch league and there's Athletes Unlimited and all these different things. But, like, they could be, like, the Canadian women's national team. Because they definitely inspired a lot of young girls and a lot of women and a lot of people that take notice of them. And they all have these, like, incredible personalities and stories. And Danielle was just like, we have to also normalize motherhood because there's a lot of moms out here that are also trying to win medals and, and, and have children. And it's like, that's just a thing that has to be okay with people. So they were, I mean, I get chills when I think about interviewing these people and everyone cries. It is, the Olympics is the most emotional time. I got to go see a therapist now after how dealing with all these athletes because they were, man, I'm crying. Todd Fraser's crying at the end of the game. I didn't think I'd see a lot of crying in baseball. As they say, there's no crying in baseball. There's a lot of crying in baseball. And then I'm starting to tear up because it's like so emotional. And you're like, no, Julie, you're, got to pull together like you're doing this interview but the olympics is something different so it's a wild ride awesome awesome talk julie thank you so much for doing this this morning and uh get settled take that three-month period you're probably going to need to get the jet lag out uh from the other side of the world and uh please uh we'd love to talk to you again down the road 
Yeah, thanks for having me on, guys. I appreciate it. Keep up the great work. Thank you. Julie Stewart-Binks, a Toronto woman made good down there in the United States, yes. the host of Drinks with Binks. Sounds like she needs one or two just to kind of <laughs> chill and get back I, on I track. I'll tell you what, a 13-hour yeah. sleep on a 13-hour flight ain't bad. So we've been waiting for this interview and really looking forward to it. He is Canada's gold medal decathlete, Damian Warner is on the line. Damien, good morning. Congratulations. And I'm going to start with the throwaway question that everybody asks, except this time it's not being lazy. Since you've been home, how are you? And how busy have you been? Hey, it's, thanks for having me on. It's uh, It's been a little crazy since I've got home. Uh, it's been a little crazy since the decathlon ended, actually. Uh, I think we had two hours sleep uh, in Tokyo and then had to do a bunch of media stuff, and it's kind of been a whirlwind since, but uh, it's, been, uh, it's been fun. Now, watching, which we did with interest, and actually uh, had a compatriot in second place at some point, so it was really exciting for Canadian fans. So all these events, in your head, is it kind of that everything went according to Hoyle, or was there a blip that you said, oh, geez, I kind of didn't do what I wanted to do in this event, and then others that maybe you did a little bit better. I mean, how was that whole ride from what you thought? Yeah, I think as athletes, we're, we're perfectionists in a way, and we wanted the events to go perfectly. Uh, never does, but uh, this went really, really well. Um, all the events were, were solid. There was no events that were kind of uh, anchoring me down or anything like that, and yeah, it was just kind of went according to plan for once, and it was a, a nice little change. Damian Warner is Canada's Olympic decathlete, and he is with us on leadoff, Sportsnet 590, the fan. So we had a little chat with your coach, or one of your coaches, Dennis Nielsen, earlier okay. this week, and he gave us a lot of intel, and it was fantastic. I'm hung up on this, and, and others have tried to fill in the blanks, but now we're coming to you for this. How do you train for what you do? Because you sprint... You run long, you jump high, you jump long, you throw a shot put, you throw a discus, you throw a javelin. And I would say, Damien, what does a day of training look like for you? But that probably wouldn't be enough. What does a week, two weeks, a month look like for you so that you can do everything you need to do and while doing it, ensuring you're not compromising yourself in other areas of your training? Yeah, exactly. That's the tricky thing about the decathlon is that there's just so many different events and, and so little time. And uh, it's kind of like a, bu a balancing act. So we focus a lot on our strengths and all at the same time trying to improve our weaknesses that we have. And it's uh, I think that's the reason why I like the decathlon is because there's always room for improvement. There's always, uh, since we don't have so much time to focus on each individual event like a specialist, uh, that always leaves uh, room for us to grow. So it's kind of like a puzzle. You're trying to put all these pieces together and uh, you never really uh, kind of grasp it all, but it's, uh, it's, a, it's a great challenge and it's something that I, I really enjoy. So is there, I'm drilling down here, is there like a throw day? Is there a day that uh, you're running sprints? Is there a day you're running long? Like what does it look like? Yeah, so like what we try to do is we try to like break the training up. So we usually pair like a run and a jump or a run, a jump, and a throw. Um, so we're never necessarily just only doing a run on one day and a jump on another day we're kind of like pairing some of the events sometimes in the order of the, of the decathlon and sometimes just kind of uh based on availability of facilities and things like that so it's it's always a, a challenge to schedule it and uh that's why uh, the coaches have a such a challenging job 
Okay, okay, so the, the training, the complexity of training, but how does it start in the first place? Like, what are you really, you're obviously good at something, and then you say, okay, I'm going to try another event or two. And then does someone say, you know what, if you're doing a couple events, you should look at doing 10 events. And then all of a sudden, it spreads from there. So what, what, where's the genesis of things for you, and how did it grow when you cut, and you start considering, yeah, decathlon? Uh, yeah, so like when I was in high school, I started out as a jumper, so I did long jump, triple jump, high jump. And then uh, when I got later on in my high school career, we started um, doing some of the sprints. So I did the 100 meters and 200. And when I was about to leave high school, um, my coaches suggested I try the decathlon and didn't really know what that was at the time, but we kind of pursued it anyways. And yeah, it's, that's kind of how it went. Um, and then from there, we kind of just brought some other people on the board and I learned to hurdle, learned to pole vault. Uh, learn to throw discus, javelin, things like that. So um, it's it's kind of been a, a fun little journey uh, learning all these different events because that, that, I think that's the cool thing about the decathlon is that all the events are so different. Um, so there's always challenges of learning them all. With Damian Warder on leadoff, Sportsnet 590, the fans. So you, you talked in high school that you were a jumper. Would you define that as your strength? Like if you if you were to say, I'm out of all of the skills out of all of the sports I'm best at this and then rank them downward what would you say is your best and then two three four type thing yeah so jumps the jumps are the ones that I started out with and those were my my best events but I think over time the speed events have become my my strength you know the 100 meters the hurdles uh, I think you get most of the points from those but also long jump has kind of come on uh, as of the last little while and it's it's one of my strong events so uh, definitely the speed and the power events um, and some of the thrower throwing events or the pole vault, the javelin, uh, the technical events are the ones that give me and uh, a lot of decathletes the most problems. So watching the human side, Damien, no fans there, which was unfortunate because you missed that. I'm sure you missed it there. We missed it on TV. Uh, then at the end, I wasn't sure what happened because someone else on the final running event seemed really happy. And I go, oh, don't tell me he lost. But then you looked and you reacted. But I really liked that your friends and family back, they were going crazy. So they that gave me a sense that something really good happened. And uh, uh, out of a negative, it seemed to come a positive that you got to deal with them directly uh, versus viewing FaceTime. Was, was that a real cool thing to be, to be able to get to your family and friends that quickly? Uh, for sure. I, I think it's one of those things where when we found out that family and friends weren't going to be able to travel to Tokyo is obviously a big blow because when I look back to 2012 and 2016, those were uh, my first Olympics and the experiences that I've had, the things that I take away the most are the experiences with family. Uh, so it was tough when they weren't able to come. Um, but at the same time with social media and text messages and, and FaceTime and all that kind of stuff, uh, I was able to see my, my family celebrating back home. Uh, and then obviously we have a great camaraderie amongst the decathletes. So on the track, um, we were kind of hugging each other, congratulating each other. And then uh, we did, there was something that happened this time that doesn't usually happen. The tap on computer at the same time. So uh, those guys were there uh, congratulating us as well. So it was, it was still a really cool atmosphere considering, but um, yeah, it would have been awesome to have the family there for sure. With Damian Warner on leadoff, Sportsnet 590, the fans. So you, you won a bronze in 2016 in Rio and, of course, a, a gold uh, just now in, in Tokyo. And one of your rivals, and I would assume he's a pal of yours, as you say, the decathletes are close, Kevin Meyer, uh, won silver both in 16 and, and this year in Tokyo. I, I'm wondering, Damian, what you took away from your experience in Rio, if anything, that helped vault you 
uh, up to up to the gold. What what did you learn five years ago, if anything, that applied to Tokyo 2021? Yeah, so I think it it allowed me to have an experience that I think a lot of athletes are looking for. So a lot of athletes are looking to qualify for the games in the first place, and uh, I got that experience in 2012, and it was amazing. And then in 2016, I I was in hindsight, lucky enough to, to get on the podium. Uh, and I was a little disappointed because I believed that I could, could have won the gold there, but uh, wasn't ready for it at the time. Um, but I was able to stand on the podium, and that's something that a lot of athletes look for. And I knew that coming into these games, I, I qualified for the games before. I stood on the podium. So I knew this time uh, I could just kind of go for it and uh, try to win that gold medal, and nothing else really mattered, you know? So I think it gave me that freedom to kind of attack the event. And it was just a... Uh, it was, it was kind of freeing. It was really special. And, and when I look back on 2016 and how disappointed I was, there's nothing really to be that disappointed about because I stood on the podium with two other guys. They're both world record holders, both scored over 9,000 in their careers. And uh, it's now it's a, a really cool picture. Now, I'm, do you have a plan in mind? Are you going to consider things or, or is this it? Like, did you have a plan as far as moving forward once you've done this? Um, so I don't really have any plans necessarily for the, the long time future after I'm done with sport, but I'm not, I'm not done. Um, I'm just at my best right now. I'm healthy and, uh, looking forward to the, the near future. So we have world championships next year. Um, and then we have a, a packed two or three years after that before Paris. So I'm definitely, definitely going to be around. And after Paris, then I think that's when you can start asking me those questions. And, and w- like what's on the docket here in the near term, um, do you take some downtime? I mean, there would be some celebrating responsibly, of course, in a pandemic, but is is there a down period? How quickly do you get back to training, et cetera? Yeah, there's there's definitely going to be a down period. I think that after you spend uh, five or so years working towards a specific goal and that comes and it works out really well, I think it's important to take the time and just kind of enjoy the moment. Uh, so that's what we're going to do. Um, we've traveled much less than usual, but still a lot. I was away for... Uh, a decent chunk of time between my two competitions this year. Um, so that was away from Jen and Theo. So now with this off-season, it'll be, off-season, it'll be nice to just kind of uh, hang around and, and do some things with the family for the next little while. Damien, congratulations. We all watched with interest. Uh, we're all very proud and, and thrilled you're back home and safe. It was an awesome, awesome sight. And you've, you've earned this. And it's, it's really interesting to talk to you about your sport because uh, it is so unique. And you are the greatest athlete in the world as we sit here today. So congratulations. Thank you for your time and certainly hope we can catch up again. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. Damian Warner. So our first time talking to Damian, or at least I'll speak for myself on that, and Dennis Nielsen, his coach, who was earlier uh, on earlier this week, and others all testified to what a good dude he is. It seems to be. Yeah, and, and you know, Dennis also mentioned that the program, the track and field program done at the school was done. Yes. And yep. and they got it going again, him and another cohort and colleague and in a big way because they saw the some potential in Damien, not about necessarily the time being a gold medal in the decathlon. Now, I'm sure Damien inherently in him, he would have pursued things. But imagine if that program hadn't got going, like the grassroots program, the chance to excel at those three events or so, and then encouraging him to look at the decathlon. And here we are all these years later on. Some to Chew On is brought to you by Great Canadian Meat. And if you're waking up and you haven't checked the standings, here's the deal. The Blue Jays are still two and a half games back of the second wild card spot. That's the good news. 
Yeah, it'd be nice if they were a game and a half back. But yes, but you're right. They, they, they didn't take advantage, but they lost 6-3 in Anaheim last night to the LA Angels. The Red Sox had lost earlier in the day to the Tampa Bay Rays. The Yankees had helps. They lost late last night uh, to the White Sox in the Cornfield game, Field of Dreams game out there in Iowa. The Blue Jays up to Seattle tonight. So we'll get the scouting report from you, Gord. No, we won't. I'm not going to put you on the spot. From <laughs> On Chris Flexen, the Seattle starting pitcher, Got 10 wins this season. He must be doing something right. Robbie Ray, maybe just maybe the Blue Jays ace gets the ball. It's a 10-10 first pitch uh, with pregame coverage starting at 9 o'clock here on Sportsnet 590. The fan Blue Jays Central on Sportsnet with Jamie and Joe will be at 9.30. So late night in Seattle tonight as the Blue Jays try to climb closer in the wild card race. So we're talking Field of Dreams and the game last night and the images and the scene, the drones and all the wonderful shots they had. They flew into the farmhouse and everything. I thought it was really, really well done. Field of Dreams is just one of many baseball movies uh, that has done well through the years, whether it's a movie like Bull Durham or Robert Redford in The Natural, Eight Men Out. You, a league of their own. A league of their own. There's no crying in baseball. Bad News Bears. Bad News Bears, a sandlot. Like on and on and on. And then there, for the love of the game, that was a Costner movie in the late 90s. It didn't do as well at the box office, but some people love it. Lots of baseball movies and probably more baseball movies than football movies than movies to do with other sports. What does baseball do so well or what is it about baseball? that lends it so well to the big screen. We will discuss that with the senior film writer for Now Magazine, Norm Wilner, is with us next. Maria said, Gord Stelic for Ziggy on your Friday morning. Field of Dreams game goes down last night in Dyersville, Iowa, and it's a it's a crazy game. Eight home runs. Lots of corn balls. Yeah. <laughs> last the night. Literally. Corn. Literally. And the Yankees were down three in the ninth, stormed back with a couple of two-run home runs off the bats of guys you'd expect. Aaron Judge and Giancarlo Stanton, they take an 8-7 lead, and then Timmy Anderson comes up with a runner on in the bottom of the ninth. Oppo. Oppo taco into the corn. A corn taco. <laughs> How far can I take this for Timmy Anderson? The good. White Sox win 9-8. Uh, so, of course, the game was played in essentially the very same spot that the film that came out in 1989 was, was recorded at, filmed at. And Kevin Costner was there, and they did the whole thing. There's something about baseball that lends it to the big screen. We'll discuss that. And we'll also ask the question that seems to light up a little bit of debate, which is, do you like the movie Field of Dreams? Uh, Norm Wilner is the senior film writer for Now Magazine, and he is with us. Norm, good morning. How are you? I'm good. How are you guys doing? We're doing we're doing very well. So, uh, you're a film critic. Yeah. Do you like Field of Dreams? I do actually. Um, I used to 
uh, when when uh, my brother Mike was at the station, we would do these uh, this thing every usually like Christmas Eve because things were slow. We would talk about, but he would bring me in. We would talk about sports movies and Field of Dreams always came up. Um, people would call in and argue that it's not a baseball movie, so it shouldn't count. And I would just say, you are wrong. Of course, it's a baseball movie. People play baseball in it. It's all about baseball. Um, but it does the thing that I love about sports movies, which is that it isn't just about the sport. There are movies where people just play the game, and that is enough. You know, like stuff like Major League or um, I guess even um, – what's the other one that I was thinking of? Uh, the other Costner film for Love of the Game. But the one the, – the sports films that I've always responded to the most are the ones where we find out about the sport through what it means to the characters and, and how it – impacts the plot of the film and Field of Dreams and the other other Kevin Costner film Bull Durham are the ones where baseball is an element. It's it's the reason the story happens, but it's not just about watching people play. Um, for, um, what's the other one that does? The League of Their Own does the same thing. It's really more about what the game brings out in people. And Field of Dreams is the one that, because it's based on a book by W.P. Kinsella and is about religion as much as anything else baseball as religion baseball as spirituality as mythology as as the you know the soul of america that stuff gets kind of squishy when you talk about it but in the film it isn't it's simply there it's just part of it and you know kevin costner coming out of a cornfield last night is hokey as hell but it also fits perfectly with that spirituality with that sense of the love uh, of baseball and the reverence for baseball that the movie is about and, you know, when we're talking about sports movies, so maybe the best hockey movie, Slapshot. Okay, so that's that's one extreme. Everybody that, loves Slapshot. Everyone loves Slapshot. So, but, but it means that sport compared to baseball, it, you can romanticize it, right, Norm? I mean, that just seems to be that it's the one sport that, that you can do it. It's uh, it's how you think of baseball as America's pastime historically. And, and, and you, I guess you, there's more things you can do with it as far as a movie goes. Yeah, I think so. Well, I mean, the problem with hockey and football and I guess even to to some extent, well, not cricket. <laughs> I was going to say, the thing about baseball is it's a slow game. It's um, it's not really as strategic as everyone wants to believe because ultimately it does come down to one person throwing a ball and another person hitting it and everything else that happens is it's done in the moment. So it's, it's, it's slow and then it's fast and then it's slow and then it's fast. And that Pacing allows you to allows rather the pacing allows. Sorry, it's really early in the morning. Uh, I know how you guys do this, but I'm just I'm a night person. Uh, the pacing of the game allows filmmakers to enhance it with music and you know the beautiful golden cinematography in, in Field of Dreams or something like The Natural, where everything is this huge, important mythological undertaking. Uh, and the game is incidental, but when someone hits a ball, lights explode. You do that with the cutting, and you do that with with the strategy of cinema. And so I know this is awfully heady, but Slapshot is not that kind of movie, right? Because hockey moves too fast. So Slapshot is jokes and swearing and the Hanson brothers. And for a lot of people, when they see that at eight years old, it's like an adrenaline shot. They they just they're delighted by all the the naughty words, but they also get the energy of the game. And and football, you know, every football movie is about somebody getting hurt. 
about people getting pulverized, stuff like Friday Night Lights and any given Sunday. It's just about the, the kinetic energy of the game on the field. Baseball movies are generally a little more thoughtful. And when uh, when Phil Alden Robinson made Field of Dreams, he took it all the way and made something genuinely beautiful. I mean, the way that the players fade in and out of the cornfield, it's not a big elaborate special effects sequence. It's so subtle, you don't even notice it. People watched it you know, frame by frame when it came out on video to see how they did it. And all it was was a dissolve. But it's because of because of the, the nature of the sport, because you don't expect them to go sprinting off into, into the distance. You get to have these little slow moments of contemplation, and, and it's really magical when it's done right. Norm Wilner is our guest. He's the uh, senior film writer for Now Magazine, and this is leadoff, Sportsnet 590, The Fan. Personal opinion, Norm, I suppose, although you've got an analytical bent for this that, that uh, Gordon and I, pres- I presume do not, are, is there a type of baseball movie in your experience that has been done better than another? So Bull Durham is just guttural jock culture, right? It's, a, it's, about, yeah. it's about a kid on the way up, um, a guy on the way down, uh, a woman who is in between uh, and 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 is very much a presence in the baseball. As she said, baseball is my religion. The baseball culture of that particular small town. Is it the sure. romanticism of Field of Dreams? Um, you know, A League of Their Own was a story that was based in some reality. Of course, right? It was the Second World yeah, War, yeah. and a women's. Yeah. Is is there um, is there a type of baseball movie, and the way that it's been done that you prefer? See, that was analytical. That was really good. Don't sell yourself short. Um, I generally, I'm I'm gonna batten on to something that has conflict, right? Like, um, I think well, my my favorite baseball movie is probably Field of Dreams, but. My second favorite is probably Eight Men Out, um, the story of the Chicago Black Sox in 1919. And part of that is because John Sayles has the ability as a filmmaker to cut through the Americana thing, which baseball is, you know, so heavily invested in as a, as a mythology. The idea. So the Black Sox scandal for people. Who am I kidding? Everybody listening knows what that was. Um, but it for for anyone who might not, it was the first moment where players betrayed baseball. That's how it was packaged, right? I mean, basically the owners were screwing over the players. The players were uh, approached to throw some games. Shoeless Joe Jackson became the uh, scapegoat for all of it, even though the film argues that he probably didn't do anything. He was approached and maybe took the money, but doesn't seem like he actually actively worked to throw the game. But because the owners didn't want to acknowledge the disparity in the way they were paying their players versus the money they were making from the game themselves, the um, the, the teammates, the Chicago White Sox, were crucified for it. They were they took all of the blame. <clears throat> Excuse me. And so John Sales shows you how it happened by just demonstrating that the power was always with the owners, the players. Some of them were just suckered into it. Um, one character famously signs with an X on his contract because he simply can't read or write because that was the world at the time. And it was all about taking advantage of people who had incredible athletic ability, but maybe no education, no business sense, no acumen, no protection. 
And I love 8-Min Out because it's this great, slow look at everything about America that isn't true, that baseball is often thrown up to distract people from. All the the labor problems and the exploitation and just the casual racism of the time because there were no black players, even though they called them the Black Sox as an insult. There's the whole other thing. The Negro League hadn't happened yet. And and it's, or maybe it had because I don't know that period terribly well, I'm, I'm afraid. But it's this terrific small film which was made without a lot of money and still manages to be a really effective recreation of the period uh, about how baseball is um, is pushed forward as a mythology to distract people from their real problems. Field of Dreams is the mirror image of that because it's all about redeeming the Black Sox, but it's also about baseball as the escape that Eight Men Out pretends it is. So those are my two favorites. They're the two poles of, of the... Uh, of the baseball spectrum, I suppose. But then I really like Bull Durham. It's a lot of fun. Uh, I have a podcast called Someone Else's Movie, and that was the episode that, uh, that was the movie that Mike picked when he wanted to do the uh, show. And it's just this great, it was this really fun conversation between two people with completely different perspectives on what a baseball movie should do. But we could agree that Bull Durham satisfies everything. Um, and you mentioned The League of Their Own as well. And I think those are films, all of these films are movies with clear stories, with clear conflicts and narratives, and they're personal. Bull Durham is a romantic triangle within the world of baseball. Uh, a League of Their Own is a sister's story. It's a sibling rivalry story within the world of baseball, uh, which also is incredibly rich and dense with, with detail and, and a great deal of fun. And um, Field of Dreams is a family story. It's about a son looking for his father, and it's about a man trying to be a good dad. It's a terrific film on all sorts of levels. And if you took the baseball out of it, it would be different, but it would also still, I think, work the same way. If it was a guy trying to build a church, which is basically what Ray Kinsella's baseball field is, I think you could probably make the same argument. Why does it stand up the, the test of time so well? It's just solid. I mean, really, they're, it's pre-digital, right? It's, it's, a, it's a handmade movie. Everything you see is real. Everything you see is built. There is a baseball field in the middle of the corn of Iowa. Um, and that field is still there. It's not where they played last night, which I, I found fascinating. Like the, the real state, the real field wasn't big enough. So they had to actually make another one on the other side of the cornfield. There's a great aerial shot um, running around. I saw it on the, oh, I think it was, I think it was some Iowa newspaper actually that ran it. I, I found it online this morning. Uh, there's a terrific shot of the, of the new field and the old field. And the old field is, I think, a third smaller. But um, I think basically it landed at exactly the right time. It was released in the like the first year of George Bush's presidency. The Reagan revolution was starting to sour. Iran-Contra had happened. Um, people were beginning to acknowledge that, you know, America wasn't at its best. And here's a film that is about the intrinsic values of America as they have been mythologized over the years. But it doesn't pretend that everything's perfect. One of the subplots, I had completely forgotten about this. One of the subplots is about um, uh, Ray's wife, played by Amy Madigan, uh, trying to stop uh, her school board from banning books. Like it's about the Christian right pushing into education. And, you know, that certainly happened. It's incredibly prescient. It's also there's this whole echoes of the book was about it as well. It's about the the um, the death of 60s idealism in the in the well, it was the early 80s when Kinsella wrote the book, but it's about that. These guys are 
hippies who aged into being respectable parents. And that conflict between people who believed in a better world and the world they got is also an essential element of the story. I mean, they're going to lose the farm. The thing that saves them is the baseball field. The thing that saves Ray is being able to reconnect with that catcher, um, which I still can't spoil for anybody who hasn't seen the movie because it'll make you cry and it earns it. But all of those things are playing. All of these elements are at play throughout the entire film. And when it all comes together, it's just, it's transcendent. I saw it uh, on opening day in... um, I, I think I saw it like the one thirty afternoon show at the Varsity, what's now the Varsity 8, but what was then the Varsity 2. It was just a great big movie screen. Uh, I went with two friends, and, and the two, we ended up sitting fairly close to the screen. And there was a point towards the very end where all three of us were staring dead ahead because if we looked at each other, we'd all realize we were crying. And it, you can do that, too. Like You don't have to worry about – it's okay to feel what it wants you to feel. It's a very gentle film uh, for all the for all the heaviness that it carries around. but it gets you where you need to go. And I think a lot of people wouldn't want to admit that they love Field of Dreams because it lets them have a good cry because dudes aren't supposed to do that. Baseball guys aren't supposed to be feeling people. But, of course, people have emotions, and why not? It's it's a great way to let that out uh, while also just enjoying a really good story. There's no crying in baseball, right? To borrow a uh, line from the Tom Hanks ever... character in a league of their yeah. own. Yeah. No, but, but, but the point to is your he's point. wrong, yeah. right? Like of course he is. Yes. He's being a jerk. Right. And and he evolves over the yeah. course of the film, right? His character yeah, exactly. evolves. Uh Norman, yeah. this was awesome. Uh lots <laughs> of fun uh to talk oh. uh, some of these movies and uh always good to hear your voice. Thank you so much for doing this and uh let's do it again sometime down the road. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Norm Wilner, uh the senior film writer. For Now Magazine, Field of Dreams. You can see he's in the right field there. Boy, he really, a uh, deep look at whatever the movies may be. And, always uh, always interesting to talk to a film critic because you think you see things, but you don't necessarily have the words <laughs> to describe them because we're not thinking about it that deeply. I liked what Costner said on the Fox broadcast last night, though, which is the film, you know, there's no love scene, there's no fight scene. And yes, there's a lot of baseball, and Norm touched on this, that the field is essentially a church that Ray Kinsella is is building. But Kevin Costner on the Fox broadcast last night said, the movie is about the things unsaid between fathers and sons. I just, I thought that was a... Yeah, it kind of says them. Yeah. The unsaid or, or, or addresses them. Right. Another, you know, little movies, there was one called Stealing Home, Mark Harmon, Jodie Foster. Do you remember? I mean, a little bit of... Honestly, I don't. A little bit of a baseball tie-in. Yeah. Anyway, there's just so many that that creep up that have, uh, like, I don't know, what's the best... And we got a a role with Major League, too. Like, the the shouts, Charlie Sheen, that entire... You know, and even, even, and this is is not a baseball movie, per se, but, like, Naked Gun, (laughs) right? (laughs) Yes. Reggie Jackson's going to kill the queen. Yes. Leslie Nielsen, Enrico Palazzo's there to try to save As the umpire. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they fit the sport in in any which way. Uh, listen, uh, since last Thursday, so this week and a couple of days uh, from last week, this has been a blast. Uh, uh, yeah, honestly enjoyed thanks. it, Gord. I have too. I uh, have too. It's been a lot of fun. And today you said you were going. You you gave it your all. I know you're about to go on vacation, and you gave me a warning that you could be in that mode. No, but you brought it. Alert the authorities, Muskoka. Here I come. Have a great time. 
We are back on Monday morning. Good show is next. Have a wonderful weekend. Oppo. Oppo taco into the corn. A corn taco.